It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 19th, 2009. Back in the saddle after a uh, busy weekend. Hopefully your weekend was restful. Got to tell you, I'm a little nervous for the Dodgers right now. <laughs> I knew that going into the National League Championship Series against Philadelphia that it was going to be, uh, well, challenging. I mean, they are the reigning World Series champions. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. God's Word is true. And the reason I know it's true is because Jesus Christ claimed it to be God's Word and proved his credentials on such matters by raising himself from the dead three days after he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Tough, really tough to beat those credentials, at least biblically, spiritually. You understand what I'm saying? I'm going to go with Jesus. So, you know, if you say something that contradicts Jesus, I'm going with Jesus. If you you contradict something that Jesus said is God's word, I'm going with Jesus. Just call me a plebe. Call me a simpleton. Call me a fundamentalist. Call me all kinds of names. Uh, But uh, generally, if you're doing that because... I'm going with Jesus. Well, it's because you ain't going with Jesus and you're trying to convince other people to uh, not go with Jesus, which I just think is kind of tomfoolery, if you know what I mean. And I'm not sure why they call it tomfoolery. I have no idea why Tom is being called foolery. I'm sure that there's a story there somewhere. I'm just not aware of it. Anyway. Oh. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, so studying and prepping, studying and praying, studying and getting ready for the program. Got a lot of stuff to do. Got some email on this uh, Welch's uh, grape juice thing in the... uh and the process of uh, of making uh, n- non-fermented grape juice, and which is really funny, is is that uh, that uh, the emails that I got really weren't challenging what I was bringing out biblically, but where they wanted to fill me in more on the process uh, by which uh, grapes could not ferment, and we'll kind of talk about that here uh, for a second today. Uh, and then um, let's see here. As promised, we got stories we've got to cover. Secret code hidden in the Bible. Yeah, we talked. I mentioned it last week, but we didn't get to it. And so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, self-help, self-esteem, self-destruction, and large irresponsible mouths by uh, Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog, and uh, which I thought was a fantastic article. We'll want to pass that along to you today. Um, and let's see here uh, if we, uh, there's a story that's kind of slotted. I've slotted this in and it just is a kind of a time thing. Uh, pursuing the original emerging church, Dan, uh, Dan Kimball, who uh, has a book out regarding the emerging emergent church and uh, has uh, pull quotes from uh, Brian McLaren and uh, and Rick Warren in his book. He's talking about the original focus of the emerging church, and, and somehow that's gotten lost. And so, funny enough, I've contacted uh, D- uh, Dan Kimball, and uh, it, possibility that I might be able to get him on the program on an interview. I don't consider him to be in the same camp as uh, Tony Jones and, and Doug Paget. In fact, if anything, 
He's kind of your more standard evangelical, maybe with some Pelagian hints to his theology, but he also has some Reformed hints to his theology, too. So I'm hoping to to be able to get him on the program sometime this week. I'll, I'll keep you posted as to the progress on that. So that that one that story may or may not get to it. Um, that one we're not going to get to. Uh, yeah, and well, maybe I don't know. We'll see. And so, uh, and then uh, the the one I really want to get to, uh, that's going to lead into the 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 over the big theme of the program today, is uh, is the folks over at Nightline. They did their Ten Commandments series, and one in particular. Uh, I want to use that as a springboard into a greater issue. The question, the, the, I've, I'm going to name that segment "Missing the Blasphemy Forest Because of the Tree," and um, it, the, the big, the you know, when uh, Nightline did their Ten Commandments on the taking the name of the Lord in vain, the angle they worked was uh, regarding text messaging on your cell phones, and uh, if you were to uh, text message, text, text message the 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 initials OMG, is that uh, taking the name of the Lord in vain. And I, I saw this story, and I just went, man, that's kind of missing the big point. That's missing the big one. So I'm going to play for you the Nightline uh, piece, or the audio from the Nightline piece, and then springboard into really what is blasphemy. Uh, we'll talk. Uh, that'll springboard us then into something from Patricia King, but also then into our sermon review today. It's... Um, the name of the sermon series is Life's Healing Choices, and uh, the pastor is uh, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. And uh, this sermon series has been billed by the Saddleback folks as the Celebrate Recovery for the Non-Addicted. And you got the, uh, as far as the discernment scale is difficult, difficulty of discernment uh, is is concerned. This is um, on a scale of one to ten. This is a seven. And uh, you got to listen very carefully to how he's defining words, and uh, and uh, and so that that again that that's going to be our program today. So uh, do not do not go nowhere. It's going to it's and uh, unfortunately, Rick Warren's sermons are a little bit long. <clears throat> that's okay. I'm just as long winded, if not longer winded, than Rick Warren. <laughs> and I know some of you are going, "Yeah, man, that's right." Rick. Yeah, listen, you know, confession's good for the soul. So uh, anyway, that being the case, we've got a long way to journey today on this edition of Fighting for the Faith. So please make yourself comfortable if you'd like to exercise and lose some weight while uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith. Do not have a problem with that either. Um, By the way, I am now down, officially, I'm down 15 pounds. I've lost 15 pounds since May of this year and uh and uh, continuing in my losing ways if you would and so i'm very excited about that and um but uh, it, it's really coming down to for the most part uh disciplining myself regarding what i'm eating and um so i'm counting calories yes it's true i count calories i have a, a program i use on my iphone called lose it and uh, and then i exercise and so uh, even when i'm traveling i'm exercising which is a very important thing to do and uh, the the whole goal of the exercising is making is making it so I can eat more calories. <laughs> you got you you gotta you uh, you have to spend them. That's the idea. It's you gotta spend your calories. You, you don't want to see because what I've what I've learned is is that. It's not that I'm overweight. It's just that I'm a bank, okay? And so uh, right now, I have a lot of energy in the bank. 
And so the goal is, is you know, see, a lot of people, I don't know, it's me included, you know, we, we got things backwards. When it comes to money, you know, we don't save enough. But when it comes to uh, to energy, we save too much. And, not, and so what happens is our bank accounts are thin and our bodies are overweight. Got to reverse that. See, you got... <laughs> So anyway, uh, the, do, am I telling way too much about myself? I probably am. Anyway, so you got the idea. Is, is what I'm trying to do is um, spend more calories, spend more energy uh, than I'm taking in. So uh, and 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 it's funny enough, it's actually working. And the only reason I'm exercising is not because I really enjoy exercising. Believe me when I tell you, there are times when you put on the walking shoes and you sit there and go. Yeah, you got to be kidding me. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go outside right now, and I'm going to go on a walk, or I'm going to, you know, do do something that's going to spend calories, and it's cold out there, or, or, you know, or your body just sitting sit there going, I don't want to move. So anyway, we don't have a problem if you want to lose weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's a decent way of losing weight, um, or if you, and although I got to tell you, when we get into the sermon review section, we have received emails from people who were listening to sermon reviews while on the treadmill, and they've ended up having to stop because uh, for one reason or another, they were having a hard time breathing. And uh, if you've listened to Fighting for the Faith uh, sermon reviews, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And as always, we do not have a problem. If you would like to uh, enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we do not have a problem with that. All right, diving into the program today, I have received not a ton, but I've a, a substantial amount of emails from people regarding the process used to uh, to make uh, Welch's grape juice. Now, the whole point of me telling the story, by the way, is that uh, unfermented uh, grape juice is a modern invention. That was the whole point of it. Now, I brought up the fact that uh, I know something about uh, about fermenting uh, and making uh, adult beverages. Okay, and uh, let's. You know, I understand yeasts and the different types of yeasts. Funny enough, there are certain yeasts. By the way, uh, the yeasts on grape skins are not these. There are certain yeasts that actually. Uh, you want to use when you are fermenting things in cold weather. Um, and so there's particular yeast for doing that. Um, but however, that's not the process. It turns out the process used by, uh, Dr. Welch, and that is, is uh, Dr. Bramwell Welch. Uh, he purposely set out with the goal of, uh, of literally creating a non-alcoholic communion wine. And he did this in the, uh, middle portion of the 19th century. Now, the the process that he came up with, I've done a little research now as a result of some of the emails, is a is is a pasteurization process. The process that he came up with requires is and here's the deal. It's not he didn't just sit there and go, well, we're going to pasteurize. So let's boil this thing for five minutes. No, 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 no. Uh, the pasteurization process he, he he came up with is actually a little is very delicate. It involves heating up the grape juice to a particular degree to kill off the yeast and then rapidly cooling it uh, so as not to destroy the tannins in the flavor of the um, uh, in the grape juice itself and when he f- when he finally perfected this process i mean the whole goal was to create a communion wine that was non-alcoholic that was his whole goal and uh, and i th- i think it says when i did his history he was a methodist which makes perfect sense and that was his whole goal. And, and so it involves a, a heating 
as well as a rapid cooling uh, in, in, in such a way as to not destroy the very the, the tannins and the taste and the chemicals inside of the, uh, the unfermented juice and uh, maintain its integrity. So it was both. Now, this is interesting. Okay, One point I should have brought up and I didn't. Okay, one point I should have brought up and I didn't regarding uh, the um, uh, whether or not consuming alcoholic beverages is uh, is a sin. Uh, the Lord's Supper uh, going back. (laughs) No one emailed me and said, hey, Chris, you forgot kind of the big one. Unfortunately, I had one of those moments where it's like I went, oh, I missed a big one. Yeah, doing program review. But uh, so here, look at this. Okay. Go back to the night on what Jesus was betrayed. He took bread, and when he gave it thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, uh, given for you. And then he took a cup after sup. He, when he had blessed it, given thanks, he said, Take, drink, this is my, um, this is the blood of New Testament shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So uh, that's Rosebro's uh, quick uh, version of uh, the communion liturgy, so to speak. Jesus himself institutes the Lord's Supper using wine. Okay, now the point the point is this. Okay, is that if if drinking and consuming alcoholic beverages is a sin, uh, Jesus Christ, every time you would take communion up until the invention of Welch's grape juice, you are sinning. Plain and simple. Uh, and it, again, it's not. It's not a, a. It makes perfect sense that. The Methodist, uh, a Methodist, was the one who invented great, uh, tried to invent non-alcoholic wine for communion, uh, because they were um, very legalistic when it came to uh, when it came to alcohol. Now, granted, throughout history, there have been people who have abused alcohol. The, the reality is, is that if it was a sin, then, then then Christians were sinning for 19 centuries, 19 and a half centuries, uh, when they would uh, take the Lord's Supper. It just again, it doesn't make any sense. Again, uh, the biblical prohibition when it comes to alcoholic consumption is not is not uh, that Christians cannot enjoy an alcoholic beverage. The the prohibition is against the abuse of that gift from God through drunkenness. That is not that is not the way uh, God intends it to be used, and it is sinful to use it in such a way. And uh, again, the Lord's Supper it just adds to the thing. And uh, and I thank you guys for the emails uh, regarding the clarification on Welch's pasteurization process. I kind of missed the uh, the heating up uh, kind of. I missed the heating up portion of the process. Uh, and so in in his pasteurization. And uh, but again, the main point there is is that uh, unfermented grape juice is. A modern invention. It is a modern invention, not something that has been around for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, those who would claim that uh, Jesus turned water into wine and it was unfermented wine, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. And uh, Jesus uh, institutes the Lord's Supper uh, using wine. You know, so... Uh, tough to make the case that uh, always drinking alcohol is a sin when you've got Jesus on the night when he was betrayed taking a cup of wine and saying this is my uh, this is the blood of the New Testament shed for you for the forgiveness of sins you know take drink uh, he was uh, basically telling his disciples to sin if that was the case so anyway just wanted to clear that up so the pasteurization process involves heating as well as cooling rapid cooling so that you don't lose uh, the integrity of uh, of uh, what's being pasteurized all right 
moving along here. I'm glad we got that that one out of the way. Hold on. Uno momento, por favor. Um, I need to uh, switch gears. And, uh, yeah, here we go. <clears throat> From the Christian Newswire, secret code hidden within Bible. I know this doesn't sound like news. I mean, don't you remember a few years ago? God, how long is this going back now? Uh, maybe six, seven years ago, the whole Bible code thing. Uh, there was there's software that you can purchase for your uh, for your uh, uh, Windows based computer. Uh, you know about the Bible code, and the, but uh, apparently uh, somebody in Crawfordsville, Indiana. I've been there. I know where Crawfordsville is. Um, Nick Murray, this is, uh, contact Nick Murray and, uh, in Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, too often individuals are confused by the truth or rather the half truths of the church. The time of Christ's return revealed tells it, uh, tells it flatly. A half truth is a lie. The truth can be found if attention is paid to numbers within the biblical text, uh, Charles P. Pierce does so, and therefore his book answers one of the greatest biblical questions, when will Jesus Christ return uh, to reign as Lord over the earth? Apparently uh, there's a code written in the Bible, and he's cracked it. Now he knows when Jesus is going to return, uh, to which uh, our response should be, yeah, right. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so here we go. Uh, uh, the, uh, the story begins in the Garden of Eden 5,769 years ago when Jesus ver- first came as a lamb led to slaughter. Huh? Already we've got a problem. Uh, when did Jesus come as a lamb led to slaughter in the Garden of Eden? I'm not familiar with that story, yet this is appearing on the Christian Newswire. It documents the progression of the church and ends uh, hundreds of years from now when Jesus will return not as a lamb but as a lion who is uh, who is the good Lord of earth. Uh, the time of Christ's return revealed is unique because unlike other books on Christ's second advent, this book uses specific timing hidden in just plain sight within the Bible. Has he never read uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth or you know, Countdown to Armageddon, you know, the 1980s? Um, okay. <laughs> okay, so this is a unique book. The Time of Christ's Return Revealed is unique. No, it's not. Uh, because unlike other books on Christ's Second Advent, this book uses specific timing hidden in plain sight within the Bible. No, they all do the same thing. For example, others ignore the fact that Jesus said he would restore the temple in three, day, in three days. But as is explained, one day is as a thousand years to the Lord. Such details are necessary. And when looking into them, answers are revealed, says Pierce. He goes on, it would not be biblical for Christ to return until after 2070. Okay, so good news, uh, you can party it up like it's uh, 1999 if you'd like to, because Jesus isn't even coming back until tw- at least until 2070. Charles P. Pierce uncovers the falsehoods provided by the self-proclaimed prophets as he brings light to the truth in the word of God. His writing is deep, influential, and heavily backed by the Bible's written word. So uh, the good news is is that that book is only... Uh, 523 pages and retails for $15.90. Uh, 
boy. Yeah, if I had $1,000 for every time I, I, I read a, a news story from somebody claiming that they've cracked some hidden code within the Bible and that they know when Jesus is going to return, I'd be a very, very wealthy man. Uh, so what should we do with uh, books like this? Well, um, if you know somebody who's a family member who's read it, um, throw it in the trash bin. Uh, you don't need to burn it. It's not it's not worth the pages that it's written on. You can think of you know, some good uses for this book would be like composting. Think, yeah, think green here. Uh, you you know we we are are to be good stewards of the earth. So composting this uh, particular book would be a good idea. And uh, would also probably help save the planet. So, folks, there are no hidden codes in the Bible. Not the way th- these people are saying. Uh, when can G- when is Jesus going to return? It could happen any time now. Any time. Jesus could show up tomorrow. I, I'm not kidding. He could show up tomorrow. Um, he could show up by the end of this program. Now, he can't show up yesterday because that's already passed. And that would just kind of be a logical problem there. Uh, but any time now, it, you, you know, so here's the deal. We we as Christians wait in hope and anticipation of the coming glory of our great God and King Jesus Christ when he shows up to judge the living and the dead on the last day. Now, we've been in the last day since Christ returned to heaven, uh, the ascension, and he's been reigning since then. And uh, he could show up any time now. Just I, there's, I don't think there's anything preventing him. You said they go. Well, wait a second. The temple hasn't been rebuilt. Uh, you see that passage from Thessalonians. Uh, the Christian Church, through its history, has not interpreted that as a literal uh, rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount. Um, because again, why would there, the whole purpose of the temple was to serve as a place where Christ, God's wrath was atoned for through animal sacrifices. Uh, we don't need that. Uh, Christ's death is the once for all, uh, t- uh, sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so if the temple's rebuilt and the sacrificial system is reinstituted, that would pretty much constitute a big, huge, uh, religious problemo, if you would, um, cause it, uh, would blaspheme the once for all nature of Christ's sacrifice. Instead, uh, that passage, um, throughout Christian history, many have t- basically taken, talking about the temple of God there, you know, the one who exalts himself in the temple of God as it's referring to, uh, the, the Christian church, because, uh, the Christian church is the temple of God now, the visible temple of God on earth. Just want to point that out. But uh, I know some of you are sitting there going, oh, no, that can't possibly be. Well, yeah, he's going to show up anytime. That's it. He can show up any, 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 anytime now. Nothing, nothing holding him back. So except for God's providential timing. All right. Uh, this is from the Pyromaniacs blog. And they are there. If you want to go there to their site, it's teampyro.blogspot.com. Uh, Dan Phillips, uh, Phil Johnson, uh, the fine guys, and uh, their, their Photoshop work is just amazing. Uh, but the name of this one is Self-Help, Self-Esteem, Self-Destruction, and Large Irresponsible Mouths. Uh, so we read, this is by Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog. He says, Rebecca Lawrence was a married woman whose husband did not share her desire for children. Troubled by that friction and by... Um, uh, and by another relatively minor issue or two, she attended a $600 four-day self-help course called 
turning point in Australia. $600, wow. And after the fourth and final session with no history of serious mental uh, health issues, Rebecca's thinking and behavior took a dramatic turn for the worse. Uh, then suddenly at work, she behaved in a dr- deranged manner, murmured an affirmation, and with a song on her lips, jumped to her death. Yeah, that's awful. Now officials are investigating as to whether or not the self-help course led to her death. Now, that's kind of a strange claim. We continue reading. The reporting notes uh, that the program was run by people with no formal psychological training. Sounds like pastors. Uh, the speculation is that that it may have triggered a psychotic episode. Now, let's duly note that the same, that the same people who criticize such courses would equally uh, fault any pastor who tried to counsel anyone about anything. Uh, they would note that many pastors also lack formal psychological training. As Jay Adams pointed out uh, uh, long ago, psychologists have become the new priesthood, the unchallenged experts on the human soul. And as Adams also rightly noted, this is far from the biblical model. Now he's at Jay Adams. This is a that's a fine quote here, and right, psychologists have become the new priesthood, where people basically go to them for absolution rather than to a to a pastor to receive absolution. The problem is, is that psychologists don't offer absolution; they offer self help. All right, before coming to my point, uh, Dan points out, he says, let me add this. Having said all that, I, uh, I've said far, uh, far from all that could be, could or should be said about helping troubled people. That's correct. This is, you know, he's trying to, he's grinding a particular issue and it, this is not an extensive thing. We continue. Now to my actual point. Here's where this story turns my mind. Preaching and writing by folks like Joel Osteen, Robert Schuller, and, and teeming hordes of wannabes. I would even throw into the mix. Rick Warren in his uh, latest um, uh, sermon uh, series that supposedly uh, celebrate recovery for non-addicted people, but we continue. Now, these men and women take on the mantle of authority, stand in the pulpit, and tell every last one of their hearers unconditionally and without qualification that God loves them and accepts them just as they are, approves of their hopes and dreams and aspirations, and wants nothing more than he wants for them to be happy and fulfill their desires." Pay attention to what he's saying here, because this is going to come up in today's sermon review. God will initial all of their aspirations and back them up all the way. But who is in these audiences? How do the speakers know? They they never even met uh, uh, 0.001% of the people who hear them. Who are they cheering on? To whom are they promising God's unconditional approval? Unstable folks like Rebecca Lawrence, pro-abort extremists like the late George Tiller, who is uh, who is listening? What nascent murderers, rapists, heretics, apostates, false teachers, false prophets, or other lost souls are being promised God's smile? This is a great, these are a series of great questions. Nor does the preaching include any limits, provisos, warnings, or any conditions. God loves you just as you are, and he wants to fulfill your dearest dream. Whoever you are, whatever you are, no matter what you're dreaming. So let me just say right now to every one of our readers, God may well not want you to fulfill your dreams and desires. He may well not approve of your plans and aspirations. 
Now, I know that's just going to sound politically incorrect and like cuckoo in today's society, but it's true. In fact, I have to say it, truth and love for God and you constrains me and he may well not accept you just as you are right now. But you can't see his face just now. We can't hear his voice speaking individually to us as if from midair. So how can you know? How can we tell? Well, first, you may not be accepted by God, but may instead be under his judgment and wrath. Now, in terms of global population, it is likelier that this is true of you than it is not. All of us rebel against the godhood of God. As expressed in his revealed word, the Bible, we are rebels by nature and by choice. It isn't even in us to submit to God's law. We naturally hate both it and God. However, the good news is that God has provided a wonderful way to reconcile us to himself, forgiving all of our sins and crediting the righteousness of his son to us as we do a 180 and believe in Christ. This truth confronts you decisively. You cannot go on the way you naturally live and be heading for God's kingdom. You you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You must do a radical root-to-branch turnabout, trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, only thus can you be reconciled to God. And I would point this out, that uh, this faith and trust and even this repentance, these are gifts of God uh, wrought, uh, given to us. Uh, not to say yes to Christ in faith is to say no to God. You must, you must never expect his smile nor his blessing if you choose to say no to God's call and command. What's God's call and command? Repent and believe the good news. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. That's John 14, 6. Now, if you would know God, you must know him in Jesus Christ. There is no hope elsewhere, nor otherwise. Second, God may not approve of your plans. Hollywood is dead wrong. Our hearts are not always right. In fact, they are deceitful and incurably sick, Jeremiah 17.9. Not only must we be born again and, and, and bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord, but we must continually take his yoke upon us and learn from him in a committed teacher-student relationship. We must continue in his teaching. But we must have his word as, a, as the critic of the thoughts and feelings of our heart. Only by that word can we know what delights and pleases God on the one hand and what repels him on the other. Only by that word can we know God's will and know what is pleasing to him. Absolutely true, by the way. And it seems like people are just inventing ways of supposedly pleasing God uh, that are just not found in his word. <clears throat> so do not slight your spouse and think that it, that it is the path to blessing. That's Ephesians 5. Do not shame your parents and expect a happy future, Ephesians 6. Or lie, Ephesians 4. His, his word is, uh, nor reshape his word like silly putty, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Or compromise the gospel to please men, Galatians 1.10. Neither the all-out pursuit of money that's, or nor of popularity are the way of God. So if that, those are the the things you're dreaming and doing, that's contrary to what God has said. And you and I must not assume God wants us to do anything simply because we want to do it. 
But if you are in God's will, though you may suffer terribly, you can be assured of his loving smile now and his verdict of joy in eternity. This is what Scripture promises us. The only way to know whether you are a child of God at all and whether you are in the will of God is by the same way, by the word of God. Uh, So stay in it, stay close to it, and stay in a church where the word is taught and practiced. Pedal to the metal and where a pastor takes uh, to heart the care of your soul. It's the only way. I completely agree with uh, Dan Phillips here. Just because you have a dream in your heart doesn't mean that God wants you to have that dream. Nor is there, nor doesn't, and the gospel message, the good news that Christ offers is not that Christ just loves you anyway, or that God loves you just the way you are. Uh, if that were the case, why did Christ die on the cross as your substitute? Hmm. Anyway, we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, um, let's see here, got to take a look at the uh, the notes for the program today. When we uh, come back, we're going to... Uh, Let's see here. Take a look at the Pursuing the Original Emerging Church article, and then uh, and then we're going to focus in on blasphemy. We're going to look at this uh, Nightline uh, story on blasphemy, and uh, do some biblical work on what the uh, what you know what really what really is blasphemy, and uh, and go from there. And then our sermon review today again is uh, called Life's Healing Choices. This is a sermon series. We'll do uh, one of the sermons by Rick Warren. Uh, at Saddleback Church, and this is being billed as the Celebrate Recovery Program for the Non-Addicted. And we're going to uh, keep keep what I just read, Dan Phillips, in mind. Uh, you're, you keep this in mind as we get to uh, Rick Warren's sermon today uh, on our sermon review. So now, if you'd like to email me regarding uh, anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me and my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is, well, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, 
amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian gentle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Warning, listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith might expand your understanding of the word blasphemy. And when you understand the full weight of what that word means, uh, you you may not like what it means about your church. Just want to say that, point it out, and just warn you ahead of time. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. Right now, we're in the middle of a drive. We are looking for a 1,000 of our listeners. Now, some of you are saying, can you give us status reports? Well, here's the deal. We are approaching, but we're not quite there, uh, 200 of our listeners. Now, 
we could do better than this because we have a lot more than a thousand listeners. Now, and I understand. Listen, you're thinking, okay, look, it's the program's available for free, you know, and, uh, you know, I can download it for free. I can listen to it for free. I can search the archives for free. It, you know, and uh, you don't understand my situation. <laughs> I'm used to, I don't want to have to pay for, for this. I've been getting it for free. Well, <clears throat> let me just kind of clue you in here for a second. It's not free for us to produce the program, but we want to be able to freely distribute it. But by freely distribute it, that means that we don't necessarily want, we can't continue operating, giving it away, so to speak. And so what we're asking is, is that, uh, <clears throat> that you no longer be a fighting for the faith freeloader. Now, that's a terrible term. I, under, I understand that. I, I get it. But think of it this way. It costs money for us to produce the program. And as I've said repeatedly, you know, the only way we're able to bring you this program is through the generosity of, of, a, of a contributor here to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And that contribution will be ending soon. And so what's our solution? Well, what we'd like to do is ask you to con contribute and everybody to contribute. That's a terrible way of putting it because uh, I'm saying the word war. We want you to contribute a small, meager amount of money. It's not huge. It's just a small, tiny amount of money. It's a mere $6.95 a month. That's it. That's it. Six dollars ninety five cents. You know, we're, we're 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 talking. I mean, seriously. I mean, a, a couple of gallons of milk. You know, it, it was six dollars and ninety five cents a month. So, it, but the thing is, is what is small to you is huge to us. And the reason it's huge to us is because it, in, it ensures that when we get to a thousand, that we at a monthly basis have the minimum necessary that we need in order to continue producing Fighting for the Faith and bringing uh, Pirate Christian Radio to you. So you can sign up a couple of ways to join our crew. You can go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. You'll be taken to a page where you can securely uh, sign up, and then uh, automatically $6.95 a month will be deducted from your account, and, uh, and uh, it, it'll all be good. Now, here's the thing. I am currently working on a, a, a perk for all of the Fighting for the Faith uh, crew members, and this is an exclusive for crew, me uh, crew members, and here it is. Are you ready? We are setting up something called the Pirate Christian Radio Cove, and the Pirate Christian Radio Cove literally is going to be a treasure trove of resources for for deeper theological and doctrinal study and things like that. There will be articles there for you. There will be audio for you there that's organized for you on particular topics. I mean, there, there's it's there's going to be some important stuff. And on top of it, what we're going to be doing is is that uh, we're going to be offering uh, probably two times a month to begin with webinars if you would online studies on on particular theological topics taught by myself as well as guest teachers that we're we're going to be bringing in from time to time and uh, everybody who is a member of the pirate christian radio crew automatically uh gets to attend uh, all of our webinars for free well not for free but that's that's part of the deal so you you can attend our you know you don't have to pay anything extra now other if you're not a member of the uh, of the pirate christian radio crew 
you can attend uh, these webinars on particular topics. However, you have to pay to attend, and there'll be an admission fee uh, uh, for for that. But just want to let you know. But uh, that being the case, uh, just so so here's the deal: if you are a member of the Pirate Christian Radio crew, you can attend these things. And I and, uh, basically these are going to be fun, informative topics. Plus, at the same time, you'll also have exclusive access to downloading each of our uh, Marty Python's Flying Circus churches. Uh, files uh, individually and uh, and on top of it we will premiere them there and so there will be there's there's some other perks that we're trying to work on but uh, again the, the the goal here is is that this is our way of saying thank you for our crew members by you know bringing some extra value to you for uh, stepping up and helping make sure that uh, fighting for the faith can continue on into the future and of course if you'd like to donate above and beyond you can do so by visiting our website uh, fightingforthefaith.com clicking on one of our donate buttons or making your gift payable to fighting for the faith and sending it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 4603 Eight. All right, I gotta make an executive decision here. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna do Kimball's thing tomorrow. I'm 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 looking at this uh, pursuing the original mission of the emergent church. I'm gonna push this off until tomorrow because uh, Rick Warren's sermon is long. <laughs> If I was doing a short sermon, I wouldn't mind uh, reading Kimball's thing, so I'll put that off till tomorrow. Pursuing the Original Emerging Church is the name of the article. We'll read that on tomorrow's program and talk about that. In the meantime, we're going to talk about blasphemy. Blasphemy. That's right. It just sounds blasphemous. Um, But here's the deal. Okay. Uh, The Nightline piece on the Ten Commandments, they, uh, they covered the topic of blasphemy. The problem is, is that um, I think they missed the um, they missed the forest uh, because of the tree on this one, and you're thinking, well, what they do, you know, what what was so bad about what they did? Well, I'm going to play this for you, and I'm not going to bleep this out. Okay, understand this? You know, some of you are going to you're you're going to cringe when you listen to this piece, and the reason why you're going to cringe is because you're going to hear people. Uh, making a saying a statement that is blasphemous. I I complete readily admit that what you're going to hear is people committing blasphemy. The problem is is that this is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what blasphemy really is. And so I'd like to challenge your thinking uh, on this and have you consider a greater and uh, more robust definition of what it means to take God's name in vain. So without any further ado, here is. Um, here is the Nightline piece on blasphemy, not taking the Lord's name in vain. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They're just three letters of the alphabet. O, M, G. But they deliver an awfully big idea because they stand for this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, what happened? Only on cell phones, it got shorthanded to save keystrokes. And the word was made text, and then it was spoken. OMG for 400, please. OMG. OMG. OMG, OMG. And particularly if you are of a certain age or below. Who uses OMG? Visually, a show of hands. So you all use OMG. Okay, this is a this is a group of uh, Jewish students, uh, high school students, that uh, they're that are raising their hands. It's just second nature by now to kids like these we sat down with in Maryland. I think when people use it, it's more to like 
convey, like, that's so exciting or how cool. And instead of saying that, they say OMG. I'm an avid OMG user in text. You're an avid OMG user? In my speech all the time. Most teens just don't think about it. They just say it. And what's wrong with that? Well, it's called the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. And while it seems to Bob Miller, an Old Testament expert at Catholic University, to be the most casually flouted of all the commandments, he doesn't think that makes it okay to ignore it. Is OMG, oh my God, a vain use of God's name? I seriously do think it is a problem. I think that it shows uh, a lack of belief that God is present or that, that there is a, any sort of reverence around what it is you're actually saying. I think that uh, the fact that it's become a casual thing that's thrown around in the language is sort of a, just a symptom of that, and that would never have happened in earlier centuries. Now, I think this uh, this guy's spot on in this case. It's it's showing a lack of belief. That that that's absolutely true. We continue. Yet the English language is full of phrases that we forget started out as non-blasphemous substitutes for the name of God, though today they sound so innocent, like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Oh, Jiminy Crickets. Jiminy Crickets, J.C., Jesus Christ. Mr. Howell in Gilligan's Island always shouting, That was a long-ago coined replacement for, Oh, God. Leave it to Beaver. And where would 1950s and 60s television be? Leave it to Beaver, for example, without... Golly, Beaver, that's pretty corny. All those G-words that started out as stand-ins for God's name. Gee, they didn't say anything. Is OMG the new gosh or golly? Perhaps because these kids, and they know each other through their synagogue Washington Hebrew, some more and some less religiously observant, they say the way oh my God is used, it means something, just not something religious. Oh, my God! <laughs> means, are you kidding me right now? Are you serious? That's unbelievable. <laughs> oh, my God. Means. Like, like look at him. <laughs> <laughs> OMG, I can't believe that just happened. Or, like, OMG, like, give me your phone so I can read that. But sometimes it means nothing. It's overused because it's kind of like LOL. You're not really laughing out loud, and most of the time you don't even think it's funny. And what about Bob Miller's boys? He has four of them. The oldest is 16. Have you ever talked with your boys about their use of, of oh, my God, or my God? Yes. There's one boy in particular who pushes the envelope, and you always have to say, was that a D or an SH at the end? And I Was think, it a God or a gosh? Yes. But the habit has a hold on most kids already. You see Johnny here in the middle of our talking. He texted something. And now listen. You texted just now in the middle of the I texted during the interview and told my, <laughs> told my um, friend we got interviewed. And she said, and I quote, O-M-G. Wow. <laughs> Still, something shifted right here with these kids who said they don't remember a time before texting. As a result of this conversation, um, w will those letters be different? to you now yeah. because we've talked about it yeah, so much. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll be like more conscious of it. Well, we'll see. And maybe they'll pass it on to the next generation, the kids only now learning our textable alphabet. Think twice. Next time you text OMG. I'm John Donvan for Nightline. All right, so that's the Nightline piece on blasphemy. And here's the deal, okay? Listen, I have had my knuckles cracked 
by church ladies and it almost had my my mouth washed out with soap by church ladies it, you know when i was a younger lad and i would let omg fly from my mouth and now we're, now we're we're basically asking the question is omg on a cell phone uh, the equivalent of blasphemy here's the deal I'll, I'll just basically come down and say yeah of course it is okay of course it is it's blasphemy however I'm not I don't want to undo that. I want to, I want to challenge you to think bigger when it comes to blasphemy. I mean, here's the deal. There is blatant blasphemy being preached from Christian pulpits. Blatant blasphemy being preached from Christian pulpits and nobody is batting an eye. Nobody is batting an eyelash. Nobody is who cares? No one even sees it for what it is, okay? And that's where I would like to challenge your thinking. Now, just doing a little bit of uh, work here, uh, Harper's Bible Dictionary. Here's how it defines blasphemy. Blasphemy is a term derived from a Greek word meaning to injure the reputation of another. So blasphemy, if you were to put it correctly, is a term to basically hurt the reputation of God. Okay, in the Bible, it means showing contempt or lack of reverence for God or something sacred, including claiming for oneself divine attributes by word or deed. Okay, so I mean, if we really take a look at blasphemy, what it is, it's injuring God, uh, the reputation of God. It's showing a lack of reverence for God. It's see, it's not that it's it's not that somebody said OMG. It's that they're throwing God's name around completely irreverently in lack of belief. Okay. Now Luther, in his um, in his small catechism on uh, the commandment. Uh, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay, Luther uh, says, what is this? He, he answers, and here's the answer. We are to fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, practice magic, lie, or deceive using God's name, but instead use that very name in every time of need to call on, pray to, praise, and give thanks to God. Okay? And think about it. I mean, the opposite of blaspheming God's name is, 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 is when we open up uh, with the prayer that the Lord taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Showing reverence and respect, okay? So the, the ways in which blasphemy really occurs is when people curse, swear, practice magic, lie, or deceive using God's name. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and he says, well, let's go after other gods, Piety, by the way, it's it, blasphemy is is clothing yourself in godly piety to deceive people. Remember, the, the, the ultimate example of blasphemy is that Satan himself comes to us as an angel of light. All right. 
which so he says let's go after other gods which you have not known let us serve them you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the lord your god is testing you to know whether you love the lord your god with all of your heart and all your soul you shall walk after the lord your god and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him but that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the lord your god who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you, uh, to make you to leave the way in which the Lord, uh, your God commanded you to walk so that you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay. So when people lie in the name of God, and let me give you another example here, a clearer one. Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to be, read verses 23 through 32. This is, uh, God speaking. He says, I am, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can I? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who use their tongues to declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. So you want to know what blasphemy looks like? It's It looks like somebody saying, thus saith the Lord, or the Bible says, or God says. And then the next things out of their mouth are lies that contradict God's word or dreams that lead you astray, not lead you and point you to Christ and him crucified for your sins. Uh, and they don't teach sound biblical doctrine. Instead, it's just complete malarkey. That's really what blasphemy is. And it happens in Christian pulpits Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In fact, 10 a.m. in the morning on Sunday is the major hour for blasphemy in so many churches because people are lying about God's word. So let me give you another example. First Peter chapter four, verse seven. Okay. Listen to what Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the very oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here we go. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 
says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. So any Christian pastor, any Christian teacher, including radio guys, when you speak and you're saying the Bible says this, you are handling the very oracles of God. And God's word is to be handled with reverence and respect, and I would even say with a degree of fear and trembling. Because to lie about what God's word says is to blaspheme God. To lie in his name, to say something that the Bible doesn't teach. So examples of that would be twisting God's word by ripping it from context and making it say what you want it to say not what it actually teaches. That's an example of blasphemy, lying in God's name. Eisegesis, inserting your own ideas into the text that are not taught in the text, that cannot be validly exegeted from the text, that is also blasphemy. That is lying in God's name and deceiving people. Claiming direct revelation from God via the Holy Spirit, dreams or visions, and those dreams and visions and ideas completely contradict God's word and lead you astray by pointing you to to something other than Christ and him crucified for your sins, pointing you inward or having you trust in somebody else who's lying and deceiving. Okay, That's all blasphemy too. In fact, that's the greater blasphemy. What I would challenge you, my listeners, to do is don't just reserve your righteous indignation and rebuke against those who blaspheme to the kids who text OMG on their cell phones or say it out loud. But with greater vigor and stronger rebuke, rebuke those who lie and deceive in God's name and blaspheme his name and bring his name into rebuke by lying about God and what his word says. That's where you really really should be spending your time getting torqued. And by the way, I want to say this. I'm preaching law right now, and I know that some of you listening know that you are guilty of breaking this commandment, of blaspheming God, of saying things about him that were not true and deceiving others. But Christ even died for these sins and for that sin. Repent, therefore, and receive the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Repent and believe that he has forgiven even this sin and that his blood shed on the cross for your sins includes this sin, even the sin of blaspheming God and bringing his name into rebuke and not re- and not reverencing it and mistreating his word. Christ forgives even that sin. All right, we are up on our second break. When we come back, um, I'll play a little bit of Patricia King giving an example of some blasphemy that goes on there. But we're, then we're going to dive into our sermon review. And uh, again, the sermon, you got to put your discernment hats on. This is going, I don't, how about your discernment, your fuzzy bunny discernment slippers? Um, you're going to need to put those on. Uh, this is going to be a, a tricky sermon to review, and it's long. 
And uh, it's by Rick Warren called Life's Healing Choices, and it's uh, supposedly Celebrate Recovery, which is a uh, an addiction recovery program. But this is supposedly for the non-addicted, so you definitely do not want to miss this. And again, what... Uh, what I just read from pyromaniacs and blasphemy, the true definition of blasphemy come into play in this sermon review. So you've got to listen carefully. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith, you can do so talk back at fighting for the faith.com or you can follow, ask me my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there is pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air 
is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith straight ahead. I'm going to give you an example of uh, blasphemy via Patricia King. Not hard to do, by the way. And then we're going to dive into a sermon review. And again, this particular sermon review requires a lot, a lot of, uh, well... Uh, discernment. That's probably the best way of putting it. Okay, now talking about uh, blasphemy, I want you to listen carefully here. This is a woman who we've we've documented her crazy stuff over the course of, uh, you know, a year and a half of doing Fighting for the Faith. And uh, this woman runs afoul of the clear word of God. And let me get, this is an example of real blasphemy. Really honest to goodness, you should be very unhappy kind of blasphemy. Uh, she, you know, here we go. Here, this is Patricia King. Hi. Last month, for our prayer directives, Shirley Ross uh, wrote a directive for the email list uh, called um, "Deceive, Divide, Destroy: Satan's Lessons for Adam," and um, it was sent out to the whole list. But I just um, have heard it afresh this morning, and I really wanted to spend some time with this to share this vision. It is, it is so um, amazing what the Lord revealed to her. Now, notice uh, she's not going to be exegeting God's word. She's apparently going to be sharing a vision that somebody got. So um, I want to read this and just explain some things along the way. This is uh, Shirley Ross's uh, prayer directive. It says, I recently had a series of visions and dreams where I was taken into Satan's office and allowed to watch the enemy's war strategies unaware. The office was one of great opulence and power. The walls were lined with thick, ancient, well-read books all titled... Yeah, by the way, if you believe this, you're a fool because these people completely deny deny the biblical truth the great victory 70 bc through to current day under the bookshelf were a series of six foot wide drawers containing books labeled lessons for adam etched into gold plates were the lesson titles jealousy envy hatred bitterness unforgiveness unrighteous gain or unrighteous gain, adultery, perversion, little white lies, betrayal. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? But again, this is not a true vision from God. It can't be. The reason why is because these people teach heresy. Betrayal, pride, covetousness, thievery, licentiousness, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, and lust. A very frightened, high-ranking demon 
whom I somehow knew had been assigned to our particular ministry, knelt before Satan begging for forgiveness. Behind him stood five other menacing demons. I watched Satan remove one of the six-foot-wide books entitled Jealousy in capital letters. He glared at the demon begging at his feet and said, You dare come before me without the victory? Have you not read of the effectiveness of this weapon of deception down through time? Speaking of jealousy. Have you not studied the great victories of times past? He and the other demons began to viciously throw the huge books at the cowering demon who cried out, But they preferred one another greater than themselves. I believe I was shown, this is Shirley writing now, I believe I was shown a strategy for not only our ministry, but for the entire church. This demon's assignment was unsuccessful because humility and love, preferring others before oneself, permeated the ministry, protecting it from assault. Uh, what about Jesus Christ and his uh, death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave? Notice it, it, this is pointing you to piety, to your self-works, to ward off Satan, rather than pointing you to Christ and his victory over Satan. Over the last, um, actually, number of years, we just seem to have waves of uh, warfare uh, hit our ministry, and we're actually, you know, getting quite muscular in, in the love war. But um, in... Oh, man. Okay. That, I pointed that out as an example of blasphemy. That's really what's at the heart of blasphemy. Again, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses, uh, verses 23 through 32. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, and that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Notice the what Jesus, what Christ, well, actually, this is declares the Lord. So, yeah, it's his Christ. But what God is talking about here are people who are prophesying in his name and that they are blaspheming because they are lies. They are using God's name to cover up their lies. And they are preaching their dreams from their heart that contradict his word and ultimately deceive people and lead them away from the one true God rather than point them to the one true God. That's really what's at the heart of blasphemy. So if you're going to get upset about when people blaspheme Really save your sharpest rebukes for those who lie and deceive in God's name, in the name of Christ. That's really what is really going on when it comes to blasphemy. All right, we are going to go into our sermon review time here. That's right, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's sermon comes to us via Saddleback Church. And 
America's pastor, Rick Warren. Sermon series is entitled Life's Healing Choices, which has been touted by Saddleback as the celebrate recovery for the non-addicted. Discernment difficulty scale, a, a, a solid seven. Why? Because you're going to hear biblical terminology, and this case, you have to listen for the definitions. When you hear the, such words as conversion, or you hear about confessing, you have to take note of the fact that the way these terms are being used, the definitions that you and I are aware of biblically, are not the biblical definitions that are being touted, but something completely different. Also pay close attention to eisegesis and allegorical interpretations. Okay, rather than true exegeting of the passage. I'll point it out along the way, but again, keep in mind, this particular sermon, on the difficulty scale, solid seven. So let's kill the music, and uh, let's dive into our sermon review. So without any further ado, here is um, uh, Rick Warren from Saddleback Church. This, when, this particular sermon is called The Transformation Choice from the sermon series, uh, Life's Healing Choices. Well, hello, everybody. Wow, it's good to see you. If you'll take out your Bibles and your message notes and turn to Genesis chapter 31 and chapter 32, we're going to look at this weekend. I want to thank you for all your prayers while I've been writing this new book. You know, after I wrote Purpose Driven Life, I waited seven years to write the next book. It's like, sound like a good biblical number. And uh, it's going to be called The Hope You Need. And it'll be out for New Year's and a new year of hope. And I want to thank you for all of your prayers on that. Uh, I'm not finished with it, but uh, I feel really good about it and I, I can feel your prayers. Uh, by the way, before we get started, I want to say hi to all of Saddleback and all of our locations, not just here at, at uh, Lake Forest. And You know, some of you don't know we've got a new Saddleback that's over in uh, Laguna Woods. So would you applaud for Laguna Woods right now and tell them, hi, you guys. Laguna Woods, hello. How are you guys? And, of course, Saddleback Irvine, Saddleback Corona, Saddleback San Clemente. We love you guys. Now, we've been in this series for five weeks where we're looking at life's healing choices, which are the eight Beatitudes. And they're actually in order in the order of finding freedom. And I've been hearing about all the kinds of things going on in our 45, 4,600... Okay, got to point something out here, okay? Man, I couldn't hit the stop button quick enough. Are the eight Beatitudes choices, are they life's healing choices? Is that really what they are? Let me read them for you. And in, in basically take a crack at him in light of the gospel and also try to exegete in light of what the passage says. Matthew chapter 5. Okay. Hold on a second here. Waiting for my computer to whirl up. There we go. All right. Okay. Now, when Jesus saw the crowns, he went up on a mountainside, sat down uh, with his, uh, sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you uh, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, just first crack at this, um, is, is this a list of choices that you can make to heal your life? That's, I mean, that's how he's selling these, and that's how the Celebrate Recovery Program uses these. But is that what the text says? Is that what the text is teaching? Is that what Christ intended when he was preaching this Sermon on the Mount? I would pose this uh, uh, alternate, uh, basically say, no, that's not it at all. Let me go back and point this out. Starting at uh, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who is somebody who is poor in spirit? What does that look like? Okay. Talking about poverty of the spirit. Well, what that looks like is what we see in the story of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay. Uh, the, the, the Pharisee, when he prays about himself, I thank you, God, that I am not like that tax collector over there. Instead, I tithe all the way down to a you know, tenth of my spices and uh, you know all these great things that he's doing, right? Is that somebody who you could say is poor in spirit? No. Poverty of spirit doesn't sound anything like that. But poverty of spirit sounds like the tax collector who beat his breast and couldn't even look up to heaven and instead prayed, Lord, have mercy on me or cover me in your blood, um, for I am a sinner. Poor in spirit is somebody who's been crushed by the law of God and knows their wretched condition before God and their dire need of a savior and God's mercy because they have earned God's wrath. So poverty of spirit is somebody who has nothing to offer God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, Hitler mourned when uh, some of his top generals were killed in battle. Does that mean he's blessed? Or is that the type of mourning that we're talking about here, that Jesus was referring to? I think, we're ta- I think Jesus here is referring to the mourning and the contri- uh, basically the contrition, sorrow for sins. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. This is in contradistinction to the proud, the arrogant. Christ is going to exalt the humble. Who are the humble? The ones who confess they have nothing to offer God and trust in his forgiveness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Right. Not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but the righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercifulness basically here coming about as a fruit of the mercy shown to those who are poor in spirit through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are we not entrusted as Christians with the with the ministry of reconciliation? Uh, announcing that God has declared peace through the death of Christ on the cross? You see what I'm saying? These are not, quote, healing choices as if the, the, the basically the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 are presenting us with a, 
um, addiction recovery program. That's the way he's, uh, Rick Warren's preaching these, and I think he's completely fallen off the hermeneutical wagon, if you would. We continue. Small groups that we now have here at Saddleback. And uh, today, we're going to look at the fifth beatitude, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. And I think that's interesting that we're studying hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake uh, when this weekend is actually World Hunger Day. And there's two kinds of hungers that people have. There's a spiritual hunger and there's a physical hunger. Uh, And as was mentioned earlier, uh, Saddleback has been caring for the physical hunger of people uh, for the last four, five, six months. We've had, uh, you know, about 10% of our our counties out of work. And we've been helping people with our, our food bank and... I want you to pick up some grocery bags this weekend, take them home, fill them up. We, we brought in over 10,000 bags um, uh, to, uh, to stock the, the, uh, the food bank several months ago, but we're caring for so many people in the community, we need to do it again. But we're going to look tonight and this weekend at the physical, excuse me, the spiritual hunger that we have to have in our hearts in order for God to change us. Now, before we actually look at that, uh, uh, verse, which I'm going to actually end the message with, I want to take you through the story of Jacob. Because the story of Jacob actually illustrates all of the first five steps we've just been through. One- okay, now I'm going to point something out here. Okay, Rick Warren, the, the, the steps that he's referring to, uh, again, this is uh, the sermon series is Life's Healing Choices, and here are the choices, okay, for that he's basically imposing on the text uh, the reality choice the hope choice the commitment choice the house cleaning choice and the transformation choice and now there's a sixth one the relationship choice okay and these are this is apparently some kind of a, a process that, that that has to do with overcoming addiction or problems in your life and these are the things that you've got these are the choices that you've got to make in order to go through this process that he's talking about. Now, here's the important thing to keep in mind. This process is not taught in Scripture. This process is not taught in Scripture. Nowhere can you point to a systematic theology from any era within the Christian church where they discuss the doctrines of the healing choices or the process of the healing choices. This is Alcoholics Anonymous baptized into uh, something called Celebrate Recovery and then redacted one more time for the non-addicted people called Life's Healing Choices. This is a reco- this is basically an addiction recovery process baptized with biblical language, but it's forced onto the word. It's not actually being exegeted out of it. He starts with this process and then reads this and reads out the passages that support the process. That's not how you do sound biblical uh, work at all. In fact, this borderlines, if that, if not crosses over the line of blasphemy. But by, literally, by the end of the sermon, though, you're going to hear what I'm. You're going to you're going to agree with me. But I'm I'm preparing you now for what you're going to hear. Listen carefully to the definitions and notice he's not exegeting. He's eisegeting. One, two, three, four, and the one we're going to look at this weekend. These steps, these healing choices of life, are not just something we made up. They're all. Yeah, actually, they are. 
all through Scripture. They're not just... No, they're not. They are not clearly taught in Scripture the way you guys are teaching them. ...in the Beatitudes, but you can actually find them as the road to healing, the road to growth, the road to wholeness, the road to recovery. Uh, the All pop psychology and addiction recovery categories, not, not biblical sanctification categories. The path to becoming all God wants you to be. The path to becoming all God wants you to be. Is that what Christianity offers the world, to, the, the, the world, the path to being all that God wants you to be? I think the army offers that one. Be all that you can be. Hmm. And we're going to look at them today at, in the life of the life of Jacob. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 31 and 32. And we're going to look at the five phases that God uses to change us, which parallel to the five steps. The five phases, phases that God uses to change us. Again, where are these five phases clearly taught in God's word? Uh, we're looking at, and this is really kind of a review of where we've been so far. Now, if you're taking notes, if God's going to change you, make the changes in your life that you want to see and that God wants to see in your life. If, notice the important word there is if. If God is going to change you. If God is going to change you. This is law talk. This is not gospel talk. If God is going to change you, listen. Here's the first phase. The first phase is conflict. You go, oh, thanks a lot. It always starts with a struggle with other people. Did you know that God... So if you're in the conflict stage, good news. I mean, God's changing you. But notice, where in Scripture is does it say that the first step of, uh, of life change is conflict? ...uses your struggles with other people to get your attention on Him. If you're going through any kind of relational conflict right now, it is because God is trying to get your attention. If you're experiencing any kind of relational conflict in your life right now, congratulations. Because you are experiencing stage one in God trying to get your attention to change you for the better. And when God wants to change you, it always starts with conflict. Okay, where is this doctrine clearly taught in the scriptures? It's not. He is imposing this on the text. Let me give you a little background on the text we're going to look at today. Jacob's entire life can be summed up in one word, conflict. This guy came out of the womb fighting with his twin brother Esau. In fact, he was holding on. He was second born. The, the twin brothers were born. Esau was born first. And when, when Esau came out of the womb, Jacob was holding on to his ankle. And they named him supplanter or Jacob, deceiver, cheater, which means you're hanging on. You're trying to, you're trying to get out first and it's not your role to get out first. And, and from that point on, Jacob and Esau fought in an unusual way. In fact, Jacob cheated his brother out of his inheritance. And so Jacob and his brother were estranged from each other their entire lives. And as you study the life of Jacob, Jacob is always running from conflict. Conflict with his brother, conflict with his wife, conflict with his father-in-law, conflict with his brothers-in-law, conflict with God. He, he's having conflict everywhere. And God is trying to get his attention. 
Now, where we pick up the story here in Genesis uh, 31 and 32. Okay, now keep in mind, God's trying to get Jacob's attention so that he can, so that Jacob can be all that God intended him to be. Okay. Jacob is between a rock and a hard place. Because what's happened is he's got two conflicts going on. First, he's got a conflict going on with his father-in-law. His father-in-law was named Laban. And uh, Laban actually cheated Jacob and cheated him. And Jacob ended up serving his father-in-law 14 years to marry his wife. And uh, uh, he actually married two daughters, Re Leah and Rachel. And uh, they weren't, there was bad blood between Laban and, and Jacob. So he's fighting with this guy. And then he's also fighting with his brother, who's never forgiven him for stealing his inheritance. Now let's look at what the, the scripture says. There on your outline, the Bible says in Genesis 31, 1 and 2, Jacob heard that Laban's sons, that's his brother-in-laws, were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and he's gained all the wealth, see they're jealous, all the wealth from what belonged to our father. He's got a conflict with his brother-in-laws. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So he's figuring out this isn't working out real good. So he decides he's going to take all his family. And he's got 11 sons by now. He's got two wives who are both Laban's daughters. He's become very rich. He's got a lot of crops, a lot, a lot, a lot of flocks, sheep, goats, things like this. And he goes, we're splitting. So he gets his whole family and his entire group, and he says, we're quietly leaving. Now, you can't quietly leave when you've got 11 kids, two wives, and a bunch of sheep and goats. And he takes off. And when Laban, the father-in-law, hears about it, he gets ticked. Why? You're taking the grandkids. Some of you understand what I'm talking about here. You're taking the grandkids. You aren't doing that. And so Laban starts after Jacob to get him back. Now that's part of the battle. On the other hand, Jacob goes, well, I don't have any place to go except go back home, but I've been estranged from my brother my entire life. So I tell you what I'll do. I'm going to send some gifts on ahead to my brother named Esau. And I'm going to say, hey, Esau, your old brother is coming home. And maybe if I send him enough gifts, he'll just forget about the fact that I stole his inheritance. And so he sends the gifts on ahead to Esau. And uh, the messengers come back to Jacob. And Jacob goes, uh, how'd it go? They said, well, not so good. He took the gifts, but he's coming after you with an army of 400 men. Look at the next verse. The messengers returned to Jacob and said, we went, your, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. Now you might want to circle the word terrified, because the chickens have come home to roost here. Jacob his entire life has run from conflict in his family. And now he can't run anymore. His father's coming, father-in-law's coming after him one way and his brother's coming after him another way. And he's reaping a lifetime of choices and it's out of his hands now. This is stage one, conflict. And notice the next verse in your outline. Here's what Jacob prays. 
He's at the end of his rope. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. And, and he prays this. Dear Jacob says, Oh God. In fact, I don't think he said it like that. I think he said, Oh God. Oh Lord. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown me. Save me, I pray. For I am afraid. He's scared to death of the conflict. Now what? Okay, now. Notice something. In that prayer, we have a confession of sins. I am unworthy. Please save me. We have a confession of sin. Okay, now listen carefully to see if you hear the gospel pointed out here or if you hear something different. What's happened here is he is forced into the very first choice we looked at. We call this the reality choice. And we looked at it in the first week, which is realize I'm not God. I admit that I'm powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong things. And my life is unmanageable. Okay, wait a second. So he's forced into the first stage of this recovery process and it's to realize that you're not God. Well, okay. I admit that you're powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. Would that be sin? Uh, that I am sinful by nature? It's not being fleshed out that way. And my life is unmanageable. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just tough stuff. I mean, oh, can, isn't that terrible? Your life is unmanageable. I mean, you just got to be forced into the reality choice that you have. Uh, what a brave confession here that is to confess that your life is unmanageable. How about that I have sinned against a holy and just God and I have earned his wrath? Not mentioned, though, is it? And this is where Jacob is in the first phase. And until you get to this phase in your life, nothing's going to change. Until you realize... This conflict that I'm in right now, I am powerless to change it. It isn't going to get any better. In fact, it's probably going to get worse. Does this sound a lot like the uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous? The, you, you can't start the recovery until you admit that you're an alcoholic? Hi, I'm Rick, and I'm an alcoholic. You, you, you see what I'm saying here? This is just the Alcoholics Anonymous process thrown onto the scripture and baptized with biblical talk. And I'm in a mess, and when you come to God like Jacob says and says, God, Lord, I don't deserve this. I'm a cheat. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I've run from conflict all my life. But God, i got to have your help because I'm going under for the last time. And that's called the reality choice. It sounded like a confession of sins to me. We call that the reality choice because the first beatitude that we looked at was Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are God blesses those who realize their need for him. That's the story. What? Uh, Matthew 5, 3 from the New Living Translation. That's one of the other things that Rick Warren does is that he just picks all kinds of different translations until he comes up with the one that fits uh, the message he wants to preach. So out of context, bad translation too at this point. I'm, I am really at this point wondering what is going on here. Uh, God blesses those who realize their need for him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh boy. Bible twist here. Starting point. Nothing happens in your life until you get out of denial and you realize, I cannot solve this on my own.
nothing happens in your life until you get out of denial and you and you realize you can't solve this on your own. So the problem is is that my life has become unmanageable and I need to be able to find a way to make my life manageable again. This is Alcoholics Anonymous doctrine. This is not biblical doctrine. I cannot solve the conflict on my own. I cannot make it right. I can't make this marriage right. I can't make this friendship right. I can't make this estranged relationship right. I How about my estranged relationship with God due to my sin? How about the people in your congregation who are still under the wrath of God because they have not repented of their sins and don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? I mean, don't, don't you think that would be the big one to talk about in a church? I can't make it right with my kids or my parents or my brother or the boss or whoever. It is a mess. And God, I need your help. That's, that's the conflict stage. And so, you know, Jacob goes, I'm going to stop denying. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to admit I have a need. God blesses those who realize their need for him. Now, here's what Jacob... Yeah, yeah and what's, uh, God blesses those who realize their need for him. And what do I need him for? Well, I can't fix my life on my own, so I need somebody to come alongside of me. God to kind of help come alongside of me and help me. Uh, to make things, to make my life manageable again. Oh man. John uh, three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not uh, obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You want to talk about a strained relationship? How about the relationship between God and sinner? And Jesus didn't come to help you to make things right. He made it right for you by dying on the cross for all of your sins. Jacob does. He goes, I got 400 people coming after me this way, and I got a family behind me mad at me because I took the grandkids. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to separate my party into two parts. And half of my family will go with this group, and half of my family will go with this group, and I'll send them across the river because if my brother comes and attacks us, he might kill half of my family but the other half will live. And he might kill half of my flocks, but the other half will live. So it's kind of a divide and conquer. And if you, you can go home and read this whole story in Genesis 31 and 32, but he, 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 he divides them all up into two groups and he sends them over the brook Jabbok. It's called Jabbok, a river. And he sends them over, but he stays on this side by himself to spend the night. Now we're gonna come to the next phase that happens in growth. And this is stage two in life's healing choices. And he stays behind and he spends the night alone. And that night, while Jacob is alone, knowing that his father-in-law and the brother-in-laws are coming after him on one hand, and his brother and all and 400 enemies are coming after him on this hand, and he's sent his family on ahead, and he's all alone in this camp by the brook Jabbok, and he gets in a fight that night. He gets in a wrestling fight. It's an unwrestling, uh, an unusual wrestling match because it's actually a wrestling match with God. Well, this is really WWF wrestling. <laughs> and phase two, if you want to write this down, the second phase in growth, you move from conflict to crisis. And in crisis, a crisis is I struggle with God. 
Now I'm not just in a conflict with other people. Now I'm in a wrestling match with God. Now, if any of you relate... Uh, Notice the allegorical interpretation here. Um, Has God shown up at your house and have you had a wrestling match with him? Now, in a real way, we fight against God. Because we're sinful and we rebel against him. But that, I don't think that's what this is, this passage is, is talking about here. But now we can say, oh, look, Jacob has got to the crisis stage of recovery. To these, these phases, congratulations, you're moving forward. He says, I struggle with God. And let me read it to you. Genesis 32. Here's what it says. Jacob got them, that's his family, got them safely across the brook Jabbok, along with all of his possessions. But Jacob stayed behind, and he's left alone in the camp. And a man comes, or came, and wrestled with him until dawn. Now this is a long wrestling match. He's wrestling all night. You ever wrestled with God all night? You couldn't sleep? Your mind's just going a mile a minute? He wrestled with the man all night until dawn. When the man saw that he couldn't win the match, he struck Jacob's hip and knocked it out of joint at the socket. Now we're going to come back and talk about the significance because there's an important lesson in that. But by the way, in the Hebrew, you know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. This is actually a pun in Hebrew. Uh, The word Jacob... In Hebrew is the word yebok. That's the word Jacob. The word for wrestling in Hebrew is yebek. And the place that they're at is the Jabbok River, which is called yabok. So what we've got here is yebok, yebek God at yabok. And no yabba-dabba-do there, okay? Now, what is he, what's going on here? His biggest conflict is not really with his brothers. His biggest conflict is not really with his father-in-law or his wife or anybody else. His biggest struggle is really with God, which, by the way, is yours too. And he'd been running all... Okay, now, that is true. Our biggest struggle is with God. What he just said is absolutely true. Now, the question is, is he going to discuss the real wrath of God that we've earned because of our sins... And what Christ has done, or is he basically laying out the things that you've got to do in order to, quote, recover, whatever that means? All his life, and so God says, okay, buddy, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. We're going to have it out. We're going to wrestle right here. So God shows up in human form and has a wrestling match with Jacob. God doesn't mind having a wrestling match with you. When you wrestle with God, it doesn't bother God at all. Why? Because wrestling is a contact sport. It means you're up close. And God would rather have you up close wrestling with him. God, I don't like this in my life, than have you distant and apathetic. He'd rather have you going, God, I don't like the situation I'm going through right now. I am ticked off, God. I'm mad. Let's have it out. Let's wrestle. God says, fine. Let's do it. Bring it on. Come on. Now notice, I'm ticked off at you, God, because I don't like the way things are going in my life. 
Any contrition, any penance, any any concept of uh, offending a just and wrathful God? Of earning the, uh, the God's wrath? Anything there at nothing? How much of a man, how much of a woman are you? And, and God doesn't mind wrestling with you because it's a contact sport. It's personal. It's up close. And he'd much rather have you up close and angry than far away and apathetic. Now, you say, well, Rick, how do we know this man that Jacob wrestled with was really actually God? How do we know it wasn't just some vagrant, some hobo who showed up and he, he wrestled with him? Well, I'll tell you why we know it. Because the Bible tells us. Look at the next verse. The Bible tells us in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, before Jacob was born, he struggled with his brother. And when he became a man, he even fought with God. Now, let me just make a little parallel here. You know the problems you're having in your life right now? The crisis, the conflict, the difficulty you're going through? Yeah, be, because of my sin and, and the crisis that uh, what am I going to do to appease the wrath of God because I've earned it? That, that, that crisis? It ain't the real problem. That problem you're having with your kids, with your husband, with your wife, with your friends, with your finances, with your health, that's the symptom. Your real struggle is with God. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I get that because I am by nature am sinful and rebellious. Hmm. That's really it. It's who's going to be God in your life. Uh, right. And see, that's the thing. Every time I disobey God, I am asserting myself as a God, but I'm a false God. And that's idolatry, self-worship. Got any good news to offer me? Because that's a sin that damns. And does God have a right to tell you what to do? And does God have a right to call the shots in your life? So the only thing God's going to do is just tell me what to do. That's it. No forgiveness, no mercy. And all your life, your war, your battle has caused struggle and strife in your life. And that causes stress. And your biggest problem is not your dad or your mom. Okay, so I'm now suffering from stress. Yeah, do you think hell is stressful for those who go there? or your brother or sister, or your wife, or anybody else, your real struggle is you're wrestling with God. And that's why you have to move from phase one, conflict with others, to crisis, struggle with God, and you got to realize and admit it. Yeah, and then you gotta, then you got to move to phase three. In the, and where are these phases again outlined in Scripture as a coherent thought from God? They're not. Now, what is my struggle with God? And what is your struggle with God? Well, your biggest struggle is this. When things don't act the way you want them to, and they don't... My biggest struggle, I mean, this is it. This is the big one, is that when things don't act the way that I want them to, who's sovereign in this sentence? Go as fast as you, you want them to. You take matters into your own hands. And you don't wait. And you don't trust God. So my problem is, is that I don't wait for God and I take matters into my own hands rather than trusting God. Huh? 
Sir, are you familiar with the Ten Commandments at all? I mean, I mean, seriously. This is the best that you've got? So things don't go the way I want them to. It's because I've taken matters in my own hands. Um, man, this is just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what God are you worshiping, sir? What God are you describing? <sighs> let's, tr let's see here. I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 20, just to review here. Um, let's see here. All right, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall not bow down to them. Um, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, you will honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his wife. Um, those things. Um notice here that God is the one who's God and uh, he's upset because things haven't gone the way he's wanted them to in my life because I've broken all of those. And so have you. So my big wrestling match with God is that things haven't gone my way? I and you don't pray, and you don't sit back, and you don't think God will provide for your need, and you get in a, uh, in a hurry, and you get out there into a struggle. I've got to get married. I wonder how many people have had to get married and married the wrong person. I've got to get a job. I've got to make more money. And they take the wrong job. I've got to. And they, where is sin in this equation? I mean, it's what terrible consequences. Oh, I didn't quite marry the right person or I got the wrong job. Oh, no. We get in a hurry and we take matters into our own hands. That's what Jacob had done all of his life. God had said, I'm going to bless Jacob. But he didn't believe it. So what's he do? He cheats his brother out of his blessing. W would that be a sin? God said, I'll take care of you. What's he I'm afraid my father-in-law is going to, you know... Uh, deceitfully uh, scam me. So I'm going to leave him. And on and on. I want you to think right now. Think of the problem that you're facing right now. A, a, a wrathful God. When it comes to church, that's the problem that we're all facing. God's wrath. Regardless of whatever that problem is in your life, it boils down to two things. Will I trust God to take care of this situation? Trust God to take care of the situation. Well, see, that's the thing. If, if we're dealing with the wrath of God, yeah, I can trust that God will take care of the situation because Christ died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath. Offers me salvation as a free gift. Will I obey God to do the right thing, even if it doesn't make sense? Will I trust him and will I obey him? both being uh, basically given to you in law format. And if I don't, there's a word for that. I'm struggling with God. I don't really think God will take care of me. i got to take this into my own hands. And I'm not going to wait, and I'm not going to trust, and I'm not going to believe. You see, the root of all your conflicts in life is you want to be in charge. Yeah, that's idolatry. That's sin. 
You want to be God. Yeah, that's idolatry and sin. Uh, can you offer me any good news? Because I've, uh, I've, I've broken that commandment there about not having any other gods. Yeah. You want to call the shots. You want to run it. You want to make your life your way. And the root of all your problems is you want to be in control. So God says, okay, come on, let's have it out. Let's go to the mat. Let's wrestle. No, he doesn't. Jesus goes to the mat for me and defeats sin, death, and the devil by dying on the cross for my sins and then rising again three days later. Or, oh, sorry, on the third day. Rising again on the third day. You see what I'm saying? You and me, one-on-one, -on -one, mano a mano. Come on, let's, let's have it out. Let's see who's really in charge here. I love the, the analogy of wrestling because the whole purpose of wrestling... I actually wrestled when I was in high school. The whole purpose of wrestling is to pin the guy. To pin him down on the mat. And then they say, uncle. And how do you know when you've won? I give up. God is waiting for you to say that. And he'll wrestle with you as long as it takes. And allegorical interpretation, again, of the passage that leads us away from Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross for our sin. I mean, just unbelievable. This is the second step, the second choice where we have to give up. Now, notice there on the outline, it says he came and wrestled with him until dawn and the man saw that he couldn't win the match. Circle the phrase, he couldn't win the match. Now, I know this is kind of obvious, but if you wrestle with God, you're not going to win. Okay? You're already, it's, it's, the fight is fixed. <laughs> you're, you're not going to win. And if you ever get in a no-win situation, God's behind it. He said, let's see who's really in charge here. You think you're the master of your fate? Let's just see how brilliant, how smart, how arrogant you think you are. Who do you think's behind that? God is. You see, God loves you just the way you are. There it is. God loves you just the way you are. Does the Bible say that? If God loves me just the way I am, why did Christ die on the cross? What was he doing there? The scripture says that he was pierced for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities, that he was dying as my substitute on the cross for my sins. If God just loves me just the way I am, why was Christ on the cross? And keep in mind, Rick, you have a very large congregation there. You might have the next Ted Bundy in your congregation right now, and you're telling Ted Bundy that God loves him just the way he is. Somebody who's planning to rape and murder women. Oh, man, this is... 
this is declaring God's grace without the atonement, without Christ's death on the cross. This is not true. This is not the biblical gospel. Loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay that way. And so he's going to take you to the mat. And he's going to wrestle with you. And he's going to move you from conflict, struggle with others, to crisis, struggle with God. And the fact is we rarely change until our pain is exceeded or exceeds the fear of change. Notice this is change without the working of the Holy Spirit. This is not Christian sanctification. This is you've got to experience some kind of motivational until your pain exceeds your whatever. This is not the this is not the change that's brought brought about through the fruit and working of the Holy Spirit in your life. What keeps you from changing is you're afraid of what will happen if you do change. If you give everything to God, what will happen if would I become some nutcase, some fanatic, some religious kook? Will I walk around wearing polyester and have a beehive hairdo and say, baby, you know? If I really am totally sold out to God, will I become a kook, a religious nutcase? And God says, no, I love you, but I love you not to leave you that way. And I'm going to wrestle with you. And, you know, when the pain exceeds your fear, you're finally going to give up. And that prepares you for the second step. And we looked at this in week. But when the pain exceeds your fear, you're finally going to give up. That's not biblical repentance. It's not the repentance that Christ called us to preach either. Two. And week two is the hope choice. There it is in your outline. Earnestly believe that God exists and that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me. The hope choice. Earnestly believe that God exists. Satan, by the way, earnestly believes that God exists. Whoop-de-doo. That I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. This is not biblical repentance, nor is this biblical sanctification wrought through the working of the Holy Spirit through the preached word. Oh, boy. Earnestly believe that God exists. Yeah, the devil does that. Now, that is the second step. Now, once you've gone through these two steps, you come to phase three. And phase... Keep in mind, these phases are not taught in the scriptures, nor is this a correct exegetical uh, exercise when it comes to the Beatitudes. Three in the process that God uses to change you. Phase one, conflict with others. Phase two, struggle with God, crisis with God. Phase three is commitment. And in phase three, I finally cry uncle and I commit... To God's changes. I commit to God's changes. I commit. I don't, it's not repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. I commit to God's changes. Law, law, law. This is all the things you got to do. This is not gospel, nor is this Christ centered sanctification either. I commit to God's changes. And I hang on, and I hold on, and I don't give up, but I say, I am going to go with God's plan if it kills me. I'm going down. God, I'm going to go your way, 
because I want you to help me change. I want you to bless my life. I, 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 who's, who's, um, the, um, sovereign here again? Notice the next verse. In this unusual wrestling match between God and a man, it says, Then the man, that's God, said, Let go, let me go, for it is dawn. They'd been wrestling all night. Instead of dancing with the stars, he's wrestling with the God. But Jacob panted. I mean, he's out of breath. I won't let you go unless you bless me. This is phase three. Commitment. I commit to God's change. Okay, God, I'm serious about this change. You got to help me. I'm not- no, that is not what this text says at all. You're completely reading that in. You are lying, sir, about what God's word is teaching here. I'm not going to go on in this marriage the way it's going on. I, I can't get out of it. I can't get on with it. I'm not going to go on with this habit. I can't get out of it. I can't get on with it. I'm not going to go with this way in a relationship, with this career. I, I, I want your blessing in my life. And he says, God, I won't let go until you bless me. Do you hear the passion in that? God loves passionate praying. He hates the kind of prayer. Oh, dear God. Would you kind of, sort of, please help me, if you get a spare moment, help me out. If it's not too hard on you. Now, what God loves is passion and prayer. God, I am not letting go until you help me. I have got to get help. I'm not letting go until you bless me. That's commitment. Now, Jacob has moved to step three, the commitment choice. And we looked at that. No, he hasn't. That is not what the, this is not in the text. In week three, consciously choose to commit all my life and my will to Christ's care and control. Consciously choose. This is all law. You consciously choose to commit all of your life and your... Oh, man. Good luck. I hope you get there. And nothing's going to happen in your life till you get to step three. Nothing's going to happen until you get to step three. Unbelievable. I, I don't I don't remember the Apostle Peter preaching these phases or steps on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, we are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. But now I'm here to declare to you the six healing choices that you can make. Because Jesus, our great God and Savior, has told us that you need to make the reality choice. You need to have the hope choice. You need to make the commitment choice and move on to phase four, this house cleaning choice, and then do the transformation choice and then the relationship choice. And here's how you do it. Make sure that you you consciously choose to commit all your life and will to Christ's care and control. No, he said repent. And be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I want you to notice on the verse there before, on your outline, it said, let me go for it's dawn. Circle, it is dawn. They had been wrestling for hours. Now, why is that? Think about this. He's wrestling God. God could have overpowered him. Boom. Just like that. Why is God letting this thing go on? You ever thought about this? 
Have you ever thought about, you know, God obviously has the answer to every one of your prayers. Why doesn't he just give it to you the first time you ask for it? God, I need this. Boom, it's there. Why does he let it go on till dawn? Why is there always a delay to your prayers? Why is there always a struggle? Why does God let it go on? God could have ended it once. He could have put a full Nelson on him right there and said, it's over. But he wrestles with him. He limits himself and wrestles with Jacob until dawn. What's he doing? He lets the struggle go on. Why doesn't God answer your prayers immediately? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, he wants to know if you're really serious. There's a difference between a desire and a whim. Oh, so God wants to know if I'm really serious. And it, he's just basically waiting to see whether or not what I'm asking for is a real desire or if it's just a whim. Oh, really? Where is this taught in the Bible, Rick? When you have little preschoolers, you learn this. Go into a grocery store. Daddy, can I have this? No. They forget it. Daddy, can I have this? No. Daddy, can I? No. But if they keep saying it over and over, it's not a whim. It's a desire. And God says, I don't answer whims. Where does it say this? You say, God says, I don't answer whims. Where is this doctrine taught in the Bible? Where does it say this? If you don't care about praying about it more than once, it's a whim. It's not a desire. It's a whim. And so God wants to see if you really mean business. The oh, man. I, I, I'm, I'm just floored. The second reason God waits is God is not a vending machine. Well, praise the Lord for that one. I th you know, based on the prosperity preachers, that's what you'd think he was. A vending machine will give you things that can harm you, that can kill you. Give you cigarettes. All kinds of stuff that will kill you. God is not a vending machine where you put in the prayer and you plug it. And he did. God doesn't serve you. You serve him. God is not your genie. Okay, I'm going to point something out to you. Okay. God doesn't serve you. You serve him. Okay, now, I want to challenge this, and I want you to hear me carefully. Yes, God is sovereign, okay? But what we're not hearing in this sermon is the gospel. God serves us by Christ's death on the cross. God has served us. Christ serves us. Remember Jesus taking the towel off of his waist and washing the feet of the disciples believe it or not we have a god who serves us now don't take this wrong he's not our genie but what we're talking about here is it's really important that you see it for what it is listen to this okay luke chapter 12 verse 35 through 37 Stay dressed for action. This is Jesus speaking. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, 
The master will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Think about that one. Look it up. Luke 12, 35 through 37. Talking when Christ comes back, he's going to serve us. Frightening, frightening, frightening stuff. Because I'm a wretched, wretched sinner. The thought of my God serving me, I, I don't have words to think about it. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was serving us on the cross. Rick Warren is basically created a tapestry of woven together passages out of context and used allegory to weave in weave a web of the law but he's not painting an accurate picture of god at all nor is he painting an accurate picture of god's word nor is he painting a, a christian a tapestry of christian sanctification this is alcoholics anonymous dressed up in christian drag and it doesn't work and prayer is not where you rub the bottle and whatever you, your wish is my command. You serve God, not God serve you. And if God answered every one of your prayers instantly, you would be the most self-centered person. Anybody remember the movie Bruce Almighty? When all of a sudden he was given the ability to get anything he prayed for instantly, like his wife gets... Uh, let's think of some other ones. Uh, you know, whatever he asks for, boom, he just gets it. And he's ruining the world. But here's the real reason why God lets the struggle go on. When you're saying, God, I need help in this area. You know the mess you're in right now? You didn't get into it instantly. It took you years to get as screwed up as you are. No, I was born screwed up, sir. That's what the scriptures teach. You didn't just make one bad choice. Uh, well, that's the thing. Adam and Eve made one rebellious choice. You made a lot of bad choices. And all those bad choices followed the trespass of the one sin. A lot of them. And, and so God has to peel the onion one layer at a time. You're not, you, you don't build a problem in your life for 20 years and then instant end it with a pill. You know, funny enough, um, Jesus took the entire sins of humanity on himself and he atoned for them all one afternoon, one Friday afternoon on a cross. I can't tell you how many times I've been on the patio, somebody come up to me and say, you know, Pastor Rick, I... And they start sharing a problem that they've got in their marriage or whatever. And I'm listening to them. I say, yeah, yeah, that's tough. And, and they want me to give them an answer right then that will solve the problem. How long have you had this problem? Well, let's see. We've been married 19 years. You want me to solve it on the patio in 30 seconds? That's a little unrealistic. You got into the problem in a long time and you're not going to get out of it. In, in, and so we're going to see how long. 
Now, let me give you advice in phase three, because this is, if you're serious. Yeah, see, advice for phase three. By the way, these phases are not clearly taught in Scripture at all. This is a complete twisting of God's word. They're reading in uh, self-help recovery phases into the Scriptures. They're not actually reading them out. About letting God change your life in the commitment phase. You've got to hang on. You've got to hold on. You don't give up until God's blessing you. You don't just say, God, save my marriage, and you pray at one time, and then, well, I'm giving up. I'm getting a divorce. Many people, let me just rephrase that. Most people miss God's best because they give up too soon. They don't make... Most people miss God's best because they give up too soon. What are you talking about? Make it to dawn. They give up in the struggles. Forget it. It isn't worth it. I'm giving up on this dream. I'm giving up on this relationship. I'm giving up on this dream. Rick, do you even know what the real problem that humanity faces? Uh, You know, sin, death, devil, you know, things like that. Unbelievable. I'm giving up on this change. I will never be able to change. Don't do it. Stay with phase three, commitment. I commit to God's change in me. I'm not letting go until you bless me. Recovery is a process. Healing is a process. It's not. This is not Christian sanctification. Not a one-time event. Growth is a process. It's not a one-time event. And the Bible says this in the commitment stage. Okay, the Bible te- does not teach anything regarding the, quote, commitment stage. You just made that up and stuck it in the scripture. It's not there. <sighs> oh, boy, this is going to be fun. Romans six thirteen. Hang on. I'm going to play it. And... Do not let any part of your body become a tool of wickedness to be used for sinning. Instead, here's what you do. You give yourself completely to God. That's the commitment phase. Since you have been given new life and use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. Now, funny thing, you can catch whiffs of the gospel in there because he's ripped it out of context. Yet the context, the greater context in Romans 6 is the gospel itself. Let me uh, read it in context for you, since uh, he's not doing that. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? After spending, you know, Paul went two chapters, actually almost two and a half, talking about our sin and, and how we're all sinners in need of a Savior. None is righteous, not even one. Then he gives us this, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And then, you know, the logical question that comes about, well, should we sin so the grace can increase? That's, you know, the rhetorical question here in Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we, we died to sin. How can we live in it? How, how do we die to sin? Oh, yeah. Well, let's read. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice the newness of life there. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. But now, for now we have died with Christ. We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice here, this is all what God has done to you. You died to sin in your baptism. God has buried you and raised you from the dead. So you got to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. All This isn't about a commitment phase. This is about... This is about what is offered to us in baptism. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law but you are under grace. You see, when you read it in context, it makes all the difference in the world. By taking it out of context, Rick is doing nothing more than preaching, turn this gospel passage into law. That's all he's done. And that takes us to the next phase, phase four. Phase one, crisis, con- I mean, conflict with others. Phase two, crisis with God. Phase three, commitment to change. Phase four, confession i admit now listen carefully listen carefully to how he's defining confession is this confession of sins and repentance listen carefully i am the problem not my husband confess i am the problem how about confess i am a sinner not me i mean not my friends Not my mom, not my dad, not my kids. I am the problem in me. Other people have their problems, but I am my own biggest problem. And this is the breakthrough step. Phase four, confession. Okay, this is the breakthrough step. Notice this isn't really confession of sins. It's just confessing you're the problem in your unmanageable life. We talked about this last week. Pastor Buddy talked about it last week. And in the confession phase, I admit, I openly examine and confess my faults to God. Now, this, as I said, is the breakthrough phase. Notice how it happened in Jacob's life. He's wrestling with God, and it says, Then the man, that's God, asked him, What is your name? Jacob. He answered. Now what an unusual, strange request. They're wrestling all night in the middle of the night. God obviously knows Jacob's name. But he says, what is your name? Now we've dealt with this in other people's lives, like Moses and others, that whenever God asks you a question, it's never for his benefit. He already knows the answer. Like when he asked Moses, what's in your hand? He already knew. He wanted Moses to know what's in his hand. And so when he asked Jacob, what's your name? 
God obviously already knew his name. The reason he asked this is he wanted Jacob to admit what he was. In ancient times, names were chosen on their meaning, not for how nice they sounded. So you could be named after uh, a uh, profession, like uh, uh, I'm a baker, or I'm a carpenter, or I'm a smith. Or you could be named after a relative, Johnson, Jackson, you know, things like that. Or you could be named uh, for the situation you were in, like Jabez was named painful because he came in a painful birth. But most often parents named their kids based on their character. And it became your brand. It became your label. And when somebody told you their name, they were telling you what kind of person you were. And Jacob's name means deceiver. And boy, did he live up to his name. His entire life, he lied out of this situation, lied in that situation, lied in that situation. And one conflict after another because he was a deceiver, he was a manipulator. And when God says, what's your name? He's saying, Jacob, I want you to own up to who you are. I'm broken. I am a manipulator. I am a liar. I am prideful. I am a gossip. I, I'm a worrier. I... This is a confession of sins of sorts. It sounds almost biblical, but the thing is, is that you got to remember, I said that on the sermon scale, this is a seven. If you're going to confess your sins, the most important thing is not just the confession. The important thing is the forgiveness of sins. What people have referred to for millennia as absolution. I'm an addict. I am whatever. I can't control my temper. And, and so, all of his life, he had lived up to his name. He deceived his dad, he deceived his father-in-law, he deceives his wife, you know, um, deceives his, his brother. By the way, I wonder if you were named after your biggest character flaw, what your name would be. Hi, my name's Bitter. <laughs> Hi, my name is, it's all about me. My name is Gossip. Hi, my name is Angry Temper. My name is Lust. If you were named after your biggest character flaw, what would people say? Is character flaw. Why is it that you are watering down the terms here? It's sin. Sin. I want to read to you something from the Confessions of the Lutheran Church. Now, I know this isn't this is not from the Bible, but there's a, there's a point made here that I think is very important. This is from the Augsburg Confession, um, Article Number Twenty Five on Confession. Now, listen carefully. Now, I, I we all are in agreement there are some major abuses going on in the Catholic Church regarding confession. You go to confession, you confess your sins to a priest, he gives you 15 Hail Marys and a, and, and a couple of rosaries for you to do in penance, and then your sins are somehow taken care of. We're all familiar with the abuses here. Now, what we're hearing here from Rick, now I've listened to the whole sermon, so I, I know where this thing lands, so you got to listen carefully. He's talking about confession in a way... Um, that you know, this is an important. This is a this is a breakthrough step for you to confess. The problem is, is that what's missing is absolution. So, in a very similar way, he's abusing confession here. Okay, now listen to what uh, the reformers wrote in the Augsburg Confession. I think it's Philip Melanchthon who wrote this. 
Confession has not been abolished by the preachers on our side. That's the Lutheran side. The custom has been retained among us. At the same time, the people are carefully instructed concerning the consolation of the word of absolution so that they may esteem absolution as a great and precious thing. It is not the voice or word of man who speaks it, but it is the word of God who forgives sin, for it is spoken in God's stead and by God's command. We teach with great diligence about this command and the power of the keys and how comforting and necessary it is for terrified consciences. Okay, The important point here is, is that what's the important thing is not your confession. It's important to confess your sins, but the primary thing you need to be listening for is the forgiveness of your sins. You don't need to just confess to, for confession's sake. You need to actually hear that God has forgiven you, that your sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done. So the important thing when you're, when you're confessing your sins is not the confession. The important thing is to hear Christ died for that sins, and that sin is absolved. It is forgiven, atoned for, God's wrath propitiated. That's the important thing. Now, we continue with the sermon. So we're hearing about confession, but are we going to hear about absolution, the forgiveness of sins? Remember, this is just phase, what are we up to, four now? In a, in a, in a multi-phase process that's been imposed on the text, and no, no mention of Christ and the forgiveness of sins whatsoever. Hey, there comes greedy. <laughs> you know? And look who's with him, fearful. You probably better be glad that we name people for how they sound today rather than their character. But in those days, your name was your label. It was your brand. And when Jacob says, I am Jacob, he's saying, I'm moving to step four, confession. No, he's not saying he's moving to step four. You just completely put that on the text. The house cleaning step. Openly examine and confess my faults. To myself, i got to be honest to me, and to God, I'm honest to God, and to someone I trust. I'm honest with somebody else. It's an act of confession. It's a self-revelation. He's owning up to all of his conniving ways. He says, I am a manipulator. Now, here's the cool thing about it. When Jacob says, I am manipulator, God is not shocked. you got to be kidding me. I'm fighting with a manipulator? How did I miss that? I didn't see that one coming. God already knows everything bad about you, even the stuff you don't know about yourself. Yeah, he and he took it really seriously to the point where uh, rather than give me what I deserve, Christ took what I deserved on himself. Again, this is confession without absolution. There's no benefit to this. And he still loves you. One of my favorite verses is in the book of Romans where God just says, Jacob, have I loved? And I like that verse because it gives me hope. Well, if God loved Jacob, maybe he could love me. Yeah, what do I have to do to earn that love, Rick? Or has God done something? Uh, you familiar with the passage, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life does that ring any bells whatsoever if god loved jacob who was so unlovable who was such a manipulator 
who was such a scoundrel, who was such a crook, who was such a liar, such a deceiver, then maybe God could love me. Yeah, but see, God does love you because he died on the cross for your sins. Why is this a crossless love? Do you think it was because, do you think God loved uh, Jacob because he was such a great guy? We already know that he's a deceiver. How, remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. Maybe just like Abraham, Jacob trusted God and believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just like we're saved the same way. So Jacob is covered in the righteous robes of Christ. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to him by faith. Well, the point is lasting change starts with this humbleness, this brokenness, this honesty, where I stop making excuses and I stop blaming and I stop rationalizing and I be honest to God and I be honest with myself and I be honest with one other person. Yeah, Rick, keep in mind, uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics for centuries have been going into little confessional booths and being honest, fessing up. But are they being pointed to Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for their sins or their own penance so that they can uh, go, through the, go through the next phase of recovery? That is the, sim- the symptom of brokenness, where I just say, God, I admit it. I'm the problem. I am the problem. I want you to listen to a song right now. And as you listen to this song, I want you to think about your own brokenness. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you the solution. Okay, I'm going to skip over the song. So just so you know, there's nothing great theological here. It's just singing about our brokenness and Christ and him crucified for our sins doesn't come up. So let's uh, skip ahead and hear what Rick Warren's grand solution is for brokenness. Is it Christ and him crucified? Absolution, the forgiveness of sins? No, it's not. I know you're not surprised to hear that. How does God respond to our brokenness? The Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted and that he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Right, crushed by the law who look to Christ for their forgiveness and mercy. Think parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector again. That's why we get to phase five. And here's the phase five in God's changing you. Here's phase five in God's changing you. No absolution, no forgiveness of sins. Conversion. Okay, now listen, he's using the word, it's a Christian term. We actually have a a biblical category here, conversion. Let's see how he defines it, though. And in conversion, I get a new identity. As Leah saying, God picks up the pieces and replaces the pieces with peace. I move from conflict with others to crisis with God to commitment that I'm going to change and trust God with those changes. And then the confession that I am the problem. And God says, okay, now comes the conversion. You're going to get a brand new identity. I love God's response. Now listen Carefully, listen carefully. 
I cannot overemphasize. Listen carefully. So far, no mention of the forgiveness of sins. Wait till you hear how he, he, what he talks about in the passage regarding this, quote, new identity. Is it because we are in Christ? No, listen. To Jacob's brokenness and confession. The Bible says this in Genesis 32. And this is the fifth step that we're in tonight and this weekend. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. I'm changing it. We're getting a conversion here. Your name will be Israel. Ever heard that one? Oh, yeah. This is the guy the nation of Israel is named after. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. On this slide, he's reading from the New International Version. There is ellipses that occur here, which signifies that certain words have been omitted from this passage. Okay, and the omitted words are really, really important. Okay, this is going to be a supreme blasphemous Bible twisting that we're going to hear here. Okay. Let me read to you what he has on the screen at Saddleback church presented on the screen is, uh, is Genesis chapter 32 verses 28 through 30. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel dot, dot, dot. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying is because I saw God face to face. No longer be Israel, dot, dot, dot. Let me tell you what the dot, dot, dot is missing. Okay, you gotta, you need to know this ahead of time. From the English Sanctified Version, that's okay, I can pick it up from there. Let me read to you uh, Genesis chapter 32, 28 through 30. Here we go. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. Okay. There's a lot missing in Rick Warren's slide here. Okay. Your name will be called Israel, for you have wrestled or striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Okay, Israel, the word itself, has several meanings, but most importantly, in this case, Israel means he strives with or he wrestles with God, or God strives. Okay, Israel also means uh, prince. Okay, that's that's another way of describing it. Rick Warren has taken out uh, the portion of the, of the passage that says that, uh, you know, you will be named Israel for you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. He's taken that part out and it's very important what he's taken out because he's now going to twist this passage and, uh, say something that is not really there. Now, Listen carefully. Here we go. He's taken out the striven part because that's what Israel means. He strives with God. Listen carefully. This is the guy, the scoundrel, the crook, the deceiver. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, 
It's going to be Israel. By this time, Jacob had another child then, and he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw the face of God. I saw God face to face. Now what happens in phase five in your life when you get to the conversion phase, the recovery stage, when you start following these Beatitudes step by step and the healing... The Beatitudes are not meant to be followed step by step as a recovery program. That is a complete twisting of the Beatitudes. Choices step by step as we've just seen them outlined in this man's life. Well, first thing is Jacob gets a new identity. He says, you know, you've been called manipulator, schemer, cheater. Your name has been crook. But he says, you know what? Beneath all that, Jacob, I see in you a prince. Okay, did you hear that? Beneath all of that, I see in you prince. Basically saying there's something good inside of Jacob. Deny, this is a deny, patented denial of original sin. There's nothing good inside of Jacob. He is covered with the blood of Christ. And you're, you completely twisted this passage because the passage itself makes it clear what Israel means in this case. The one who strives with God. It says, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. And I'm going to rename you Israel. What does that mean, Israel? It means Prince of God. Everybody else saw a defeated, mean-spirited, cheating, lying manipulator. And God says, you know what? I see deeper than that. I see in you. If you go deeper into Jacob, you're still going to see nothing but sin. Jacob is declared righteous in God's sight the same way everybody is, through the shed blood of Christ. A prince of God. And beneath all your sins and all your hang-ups, I see a prince. Listen very closely to me. When God does his deepest work in you, he does his deepest work in your identity. In who you are. That is the deepest work that God does in your life. He changes your identity. The, how you see yourself. Why? Because the way... You so God changes how you see yourself? You see yourself affects everything else in your life. You act according to the way you see yourself. I see myself as a justified sinner. A new creation in Christ because of what Christ has done. I'm a baptized believer. I'm similar used to set peccator. Those are all biblical ways of describing this. And for lasting change to happen, you must change your self-perception. You, you, you must change your self-perception.
Oh, boy. You need an identity change. God says, people say you're that. I say you're this. He did it all the time. He says to Peter, Peter, people think you're impulsive. You're a rock. Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. Sons of thunder, I call you beloved disciples. He changed the names of people all through scripture. He gave them new identities. Some of you were given an identity by your mom or your dad. You're a loser. You're a phone. This is sound, it sounds almost biblical. It's almost there, but it's off just enough to not be correct. We are a new creation in Christ. It's not an identity thing. It is literally an ontological thing. You're a fake. You're worth zip. And on and on and on. And, they, and the world has given you labels. And they were lying. And God says, no, no, I see beneath all that a prince. No, there, uh, no, God would not see beneath any of that and say, oh, well, I see, you know, like the, he, he's the diamond in the rough. No, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Not that God looks inside of me and says, oh, I see so much potential there. No, this is not, this is not the biblical gospel. I see beneath that a princess. I see what you can be. I see what I made you to be. Now you finish this sentence for me ten times in your mind. It's just like me to be, and I'll tell you, your old identity. And God says, yeah, 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 that was, that's what you've been all your life. But if you'll go through these steps of recovery. No, God doesn't say, yeah, 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 that's what you've been all your life. And if you go through these steps of recovery, I'll give you a new identity. He says nothing of the sort. These steps of growth, these steps of healing. I'm going to give you a new identity. And you're not going to be Jacob anymore. You're going to be a prince. You're going to be a, a princess. This is a literally a, a recovery mythology based upon Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, man. So Jacob gets a new identity in conversion. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. The new has come. And the second thing is, it says, and he blessed him. You get blessed. And that leads us to this week's beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you're hungry and thirsty, you say, i got to have it at all cost. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me say it another way. I'm not letting go of you till you bless me, God. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's exactly what Jacob did. I'm not letting go. I'm not settling for second best. I want your blessing on my life. This is the transformation step. There on your outline. Voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in my life. He's going to change my identity. He's going to bless. Law, you need to voluntarily submit to every change God wants to make in your life and humbly ask him to remove your character defects. They're called sins. Me And humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Thank God I'm not what I'm, I'm, I used to be. But thank God, I'm not what I'm going to be. God isn't finished with Rick Warren yet. Hang around. I'm getting better. And you are. Every day in every way, I'm feeling better and better. You are too. Hang around. 
I'm not what I used to be. I'm just not. But I'm not what I'm going to be either. That is the transformation process. Now, before- No Holy Spirit, no gospel, no Christ in him crucified, none of that. You got to do these things. You got to walk through this process. You got to, you got to, you got to. Law, law, law. This is all mytholo- mythological recovery law, but it's law. Before I give you this final key that is so important, you got to have this. I want you to hear the story of a modern day Jacob. All right, now I'm going to fast forward through this this next section. This is a guy who comes up and it confesses that he had a, an addiction to pornography and things like that. It's it's a sad story, and he basically it's a testimony to the effectiveness of these recovery steps. I'm going to skip over it, and uh, so here we go to the next one. Here's Rick Warren again after this. Now this is really important. How do you know when you've made it? to phase five yeah i'd like to know that since it's not even taught in the bible yeah like that's so important phase five did the apostle peter john thomas any of these guys teach about phase five and how you can know you're at phase five this is just complete malarkey in the conversion step when god gives you a new name he gives you a reminder that you will carry the rest of your life to remind you to trust in him. For what? There's no forgiveness of sins offered here. Just the things I have to do to kick these habits. (sighs) Now you remember that when God and Jacob are wrestling, the Bible says God dislocated Jacob's hip. He pulled it out of socket. And the Bible says this, last verse on your outline. The sun rose as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. I want you to circle the word limping. What is the significance of his limp? Yeah, I I cannot wait to hear this because none of the other Bible writers uh, linked this to uh, phase five of the recovery process. After you've had a genuine encounter with God, you're going to have a limp. You are kidding me, right? Now, what is the significance of this limp? Are you just making this up? Seriously. Let me on this real close. Three things. Number one, for his entire life, Jacob had run from conflict. He'd run from his brother, he'd run from his dad, he'd run from his wife, he had run from his father-in-law, he had run from God. God said, we'll just fix that. No more running. I'm just going to touch your hip so you will limp the rest of your life. You're not running anymore. You're not going to run anymore. You'll never solve a problem by running from it. So he touches his hip, he gives him a limp. Second thing, it was a daily reminder to trust God. Now, he touched him right here on his thigh. Do you know what your thigh muscle is? It is the strongest muscle in your body. It's the biggest muscle. It's the strongest muscle in your body. And God touched Jacob at the point of his greatest strength. 
And he said, you're no longer going to rely on self-strength anymore. You're going to rely on me. Allegory, allegory, allegory. None of this is taught anywhere in Scripture. You're just this, yeah, shooting from the hip there. <clears throat> Sorry, pardon the pun. You're no longer going to rely on your cuteness, your cleverness, your lies, your manipulation, your background, your ability to talk yourself out of a situation. You're no, I'm going to touch you at the point of greatest strength, the most powerful muscle in your body, and you're going to be remembered that you've got to depend on me for strength. It could no longer stand on his own power. And the third meaning of it, when he walked with a limp, is that Jacob emerged both stronger and weaker. He was weaker because he couldn't walk on his own power anymore. And he was stronger because God says, you're going to walk in my power. You'll never walk the same again. You've got a new identity. Now listen to me. God's giants, the men and women that God has always used greatest in life, have always walked with a limp. Really? What was Noah's limp? How about King David? What was his limp? Elijah? What, and uh, how about uh, Isaiah? What was his limp? There may be an emotional limp, a physical limp, a mental limp, a relational limp, but there's going to be... Uh, yeah, I, I find this entire uh, metaphor to be limpy something in your life that keeps you reminding God it's about me it's not about you and God's great giants the men and women that he uses the men and women he blesses gives new identity to always walk with a limp oh man he, he is just a master at twisting God's word I don't think he can exegete anymore. I don't think he's capable of it. Paul said it like this on the screen, last verse. To keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. A limp to torment me. And three times I pleaded with God to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. And what's Christ's power? Uh, would that have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins? Christ's death on the cross? Trusting in him alone for our salvation? Anything, any of this ring any bells to you, Rick? The reason why you can't boast about your weakness in small group is because you're not at stage five yet. What a load of bovine scatology. Unbelievable. Because you're not at phase five yet. You're still trying to hide your weaknesses. But to get to five, the change, the blessing, the new identity, you got to admit it. You got to, you got to, you got to, the confession without absolution, no forgiveness of sins. Let's bow our heads. Oh boy, now I can't wait to hear this prayer. As we close, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and I want you to think about this in your mind. Guided therapy questions, maybe? Are you experiencing any conflict right now? 
Oh, yeah. The, the conflict within me to not come out there and give you what for. Congratulations. God's trying to get your attention. Number two. In what area are you struggling with God? You know, you know, you know the right thing to do, but you just keep ignoring it. You keep fighting with God over it. You're afraid to trust him. Friend, there is no way you're going to win. You need to give in to God's control. Go to the mat. Uh, give in to God's control. Any, any forgiveness of sins here at all? Three. Where have you felt like giving up? I'm telling you, as your pastor... I think it was uh, minute number 61 in the sermon. And as your friend who loves you, hold on. Say to God, I am not letting go until you bless me. Number four. When are you going to face the truth about you? When are you going to stop blaming other people for the problems you've caused? When are you going to stop pretending that you're not a problem, that it's not an addiction, that you don't have a problem, that it's just a white elephant, or I mean a pink elephant in the middle of the room and nobody's going to admit it? When are you going to share your struggle with a friend? Number five, will you let Christ give you a new identity? You see, underneath every Jacob, God sees a prince. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Underneath the shed blood of Christ, God sees one who is righteous. One he's declared righteous. But there's nothing good inside of us. He sees in you a princess, a prince. He sees what God meant for you to be. Yeah, you've been Jacob, but you're now going to be Israel. Without Christ, apparently. Prince of God. Follow me in this prayer, in your mind. Dear God, I, I, I admit, I'm, I'm like Jacob, Lord. I've been, I've been struggling with you, and I've been fighting with other people. And I got conflicts and stress in my life. And I don't want to get stuck at stage one in conflict with others. And I certainly don't want to get stuck at stage two, a struggle with you, crisis. So today, I'm taking these next steps. Three, commitment. I commit myself to you, Jesus Christ, 100%. I open my life. Lie. Right. Like you could do that anyway. And and, and even if you could, would that, would that absolve you of your sins? Good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all I give it to you. Jesus Christ, come in and take over my life. Every area. And number four, I admit that I'm the problem. And not only am I willing to admit it to you and to myself, I'm going to admit it to somebody else. And the thing that I've held on to, I'm going to share it with somebody. That they can pray with me and become my accountability partner. And I want you to change my identity. And 
If I have to walk with a limp the rest of my life, so be it. I will glory in my weakness because it shows your greatness. I pray this in your name. Amen. No forgiveness of sins. No cross. Just self-help recovery therapy baptized or dressed up in some kind of biblical garb, complete twisting of God's word, complete mangling of the text, eisegesis galore, unbelievable. Folks, you and I have a problem. We are all, by nature, wretched sinners, rebellious against God, dead in trespasses and sins. We haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades to avoid hell Uh, Because none of us lives up to the standards that God has laid out for us. None are righteous. Neither Jew or Greek or anybody, you and me included. All have sinned. All have turned away. all, All have rejected God, you and me included. And if our hope is based upon us following these five, six recovery steps laid out by Rick Warren... Uh, then even then we have no hope of salvation, none whatsoever. But the good news the Bible offers us is really good news. That perfect life that is demanded of us that we do not live, that we haven't lived, Christ lived it. And on the cross, he was taking the punishment that you earned, that I earned upon himself and dying in our place on the cross. And now Jesus Christ calls all Christians to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so I'm declaring to you what Christ has commanded us to declare. Repentance, turning, a changing of your mind, admitting and confessing your sins that you are wicked and that you have earned God's wrath, that you are not righteous, that you are not good. And turning to the forgiveness of sins, a full and complete pardon won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. No steps necessary, 100% free gift. You stand before the bar of God's justice and you are declared to be not guilty because of what Christ has done. His perfect righteousness given to you as a gift. God doesn't see you as sinner, he sees you as saint. You are adopted then into God's family because of what Christ has done. And God begins the painful process of sanctifying you. But you've already been sanctified and set apart in Christ. And so he begins molding you into his image. It's a painful process. It takes all of your lifetime and then some because it's not really finished when you die. Christ finishes it at that point. You are seen as righteous because of what Christ has done. And the Holy Spirit works in you through the preaching of his word, through the preaching of the gospel, and sanctifies you and produces fruit in keeping with repentance in your life. That's what the Bible teaches. What you just heard here, complete Self-help, therapy, mythology, not Christian doctrine, not even Christian sanctification, and no mention of Christ and him crucified for your sins. 
This is what I meant when I said you need to take a broader look at the bigger definition of blasphemy. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and your financial support is absolutely vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. We're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio crew and uh, contribute, uh, sign up basically to contribute $6.95 every month, a mere $6.95 a month, and by doing so, you ensure that we're able to continue our mission of bringing uh, a daily dose of biblical discernment to you on a daily basis here at Fighting for the Faith, and you support the greater mission of Pirate Christian Radio uh, in, the, in the process. So visit FightingForTheFaith.com. When you get there, click on our Join Our Crew button. It's absolutely important that you do that and sign up for the Pirate Christian Radio crew. And hopefully by the end of the week, uh, we will be announcing the uh, the Pirate Christian Radio Cove, uh, which will be accessible for all members of the Pirate Christian Radio crew, a value-added resource, a place where you can go and get deeper theological uh, training and uh, resources that will help you in uh, in your biblical growth and your theological growth and uh, in a myriad of topics as well as online education. That's one of the things that we'll be offering there. So, again, fightingforthefaith.com and click on Join Our Crew. Or and if you'd like to donate above and beyond that, you can at uh, the same place, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on our Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so what would you think of that Rick Warren sermon? I would love to get your feedback. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.